so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? out of what's going on in the world today and come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. first impulse. If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewith7cents.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon 
for my Patriot food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense, listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, and everywhere else around that you can get it. Uh, also up on, where the heck am I, iHeartRadio? I, I forgot where half the places I am. Well, anyway, I'm the hostess with the most just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Yanni. Uh, Yanni, what's the matter? He's giving me funny faces. Got somebody else coming in on my. On your, I don't hear anyone else. You got someone else on your headset. What? Okay. All right. You got nothing on the headset. Uh, just make sure. Let's just make sure you're plugged in properly. You know. Uh, we're gonna have to check your connection in a little bit, but you're gonna have to go by what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, we'll we'll check it when we do the get dedication music. There's something that may have gotten pulled loose. Uh, anyway, where was I? Now you made me forget where I was. <laughs> anyway, welcome to another effed up show. Uh, it's going to be a light show. We only have two guests on. We've got Jack Cashel, the author of Unmasking Obama, the fight to tell the true story of a failed presidency. He is going to be commentating on Obama's new book, uh, that just came out about a week or two ago. Uh, so he's going to be talking to us about that one. Um, where the heck was his name of that, that book? They sent it to me. It was called Promised, oh, A Promised Land, the new book that was just released, as if I'm going to ever buy it. <laughs> We're also going to talk, about, uh, talk with him about other issues today, including the ongoing election controversy Man, is it heating up. I'm telling you, uh, Sydney Powell has a uh, lawsuit she unleashed in Georgia, and it's called Unleashing the Kraken. And she is hitting everyone from every which way, including sideways. Uh, and what they're coming up with on the election fraud is unbelievable. Votes being changed in the machines. You know, they would come out, say, 80 or 75, 80 percent for Trump, and all of a sudden it's 95 percent for Biden. Just all of a sudden, within a few seconds, everything just switched. So we're going to talk to him about that one. And then we have another great guest, Peter W. Wood. He's the author of 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. He was supposed to be with us last Friday, but there was a little bit of a a mess up, but we got a hold of him and he is joining us today. So that's what we got lined up. I want to welcome everyone that's listening here on Facebook as well as over here on Blog Talk Radio and listening to all the other outlets that catch us. Um, anyone that listens to us knows that we start off every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And considering it has been 400 years this month, the landing of the Mayflower. And it makes it 399 years since the first Thanksgiving and the signing 400 years, the signing of the Mayflower Compact, which gave rise to the ideas and premise of self-government leading to our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. Without that one founding document, 
Maybe America may have been built, but it might have taken a lot longer and been more complicated. So we dedicate the show to the Mayflower Compact authors and the first Thanksgiving. As I pull up the next scene and pull up my dedication, this information I pulled from history.com. And it was written by the editors back in 2009. And it reads, Of the 102 passengers on the Mayflower, there were 50 men, 19 women, 33 young adults and children. Just 41 were true pilgrims, religious separatists seeking freedom from the Church of England. The others were considered common folk and included merchants, craftsmen, indentured servants, and orphaned children. The pilgrims caused them strangers. Seeking the right to worship, they wished the pilgrims had signed a contract with the Virginia Company to settle on land near the Hudson River, which was then part of Northern Virginia. The Virginia Company was a trading company chartered by King James I with the goal of colonizing parts of the eastern coast of the New World. London stockholders financed the new pilgrims' voyage with the understanding they'd be repaid in profits from the new settlement. But when the Mayflower landed in Massachusetts instead of Virginia, discord began before the colonists even left the ship. The strangers argued the Virginia Company contract was void. They felt since the Mayflower had landed outside of Virginia Company territory, they were no longer bound to the company's charter. The defiant strangers refused to recognize any rules since there was no official government over them. The pilgrim leader, William Bradford, later wrote, Several strangers made discontented and mutinous speeches. The pilgrims knew if something wasn't done quickly, it would be every man, woman, and family for themselves. The pilgrim leaders wanted to quell the rebellion before it took hold. After all, establishing a new world colony would be difficult enough without the dissent in the ranks. The pilgrims knew they needed as many productive, law-abiding souls as possible to make the colony successful. With that in mind, they set out to create a temporary set of laws for ruling themselves as per majority agreement. The Mayflower Compact was set as a rule of laws for self-governance English settlers who traveled to the New World on the Mayflower. When pilgrims and other settlers set out on the ship for America in 1620, they intended to delay anchor in northern Virginia. But after treacherous shoals and storms drove their ship off course, the settlers landed in Massachusetts near Cape Cod, outside of Virginia's jurisdiction. On November 11, 1620, 41 adult male colonists, including two indentured servants, signed the Mayflower Compact, although it wasn't called that at the time. It was the first time equality was recognized between indentured servants, later to become known as slaves, but these indentured servants served for only a very short time, gained freedom, and went on to become plantation owners, tradesmen, people of equal social status. With the Mayflower Compact, 
including the indentured servants, the common strangers, the military, as well as the pilgrims. For once, all men were created equal. It was unclear who wrote the Mayflower Compact, but the well-educated separatist and pastor William Brewster is usually given credit. One now famous colonist who signed the Mayflower Compact was Miles Standish. He was an English military officer hired by the pilgrims to accompany them to the New World to serve as military leader for the colony. Standish played an important role in enforcing the new laws and protecting colonists against unfriendly Native Americans. No one knows exactly what happened to the original Mayflower Compact. The accepted translation was found in William Bradford's journal of Plymouth Plantation, in which he wrote about his experiences as a colonist. The Mayflower Compact created laws for the Mayflower pilgrims and non-pilgrims alike for the good of the new colony. It was a short document which established that the colonists would remain loyal subjects to King James despite their need for self-governance. The colonists would create and enact laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices for the good of the colony and abide by those laws. The colonists would create one society and work together to further it. The colonists would live in accordance with the Christian faith. Once the colonists agreed to work together, the hard work of starting the colony began. They elected John Carver as governor on November 21, 1620. Carver had helped secure financing for the Mayflower expedition and served in a leadership role during the voyage to America. He also sometimes was given credit for helping write the Mayflower Compact. Search parties went ashore to find an ideal place to settle. They decided on Plymouth, where the colonists endured a brutal winter. Ravaged by starvation, disease, and a lack of shelter, more than half of the colonists died. Yet Plymouth Colony survived. Throughout that first brutal winter, most of the colonists remained on board the ship where they suffered from exposure, scurvy, and out of contagious disease. Only half the Mayflower's original passengers and crew lived to see their first New England spring. In March, the remaining settlers moved ashore, where they received an astonishing visit from an Abenaki North American who greeted them in English. Several days later, he returned with another Native American, Squanto, a member of the Poxitantic tribe, who had been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery before escaping to London and returning to his homeland on an exploratory expedition. Squanto taught the pilgrims, weakened by malnutrition and illness, how to cultivate corn, extract sap from the maple trees, catch fish in the rivers, and avoid poisonous plants. He also helped the settlers forge an alliance with the Wapanog a local tribe which would endure for more than 50 years and tragically remains one of the sole examples of harmony between European colonists and, and Native Americans. On November, in November of 1621, after the Pilgrims' first corn harvest proved successful, Governor William Bradford organized a celebratory feast 
and invited a group of the fledgling colony's Native American allies, including the Wapanoag chief, Macedot. He now remembered as Americans' first Thanksgiving, although the pilgrims themselves may not have used the term at the time. The festival lasted for three days. While no record exists of the first Thanksgiving's exact menu, much of what we know about what happened at the first Thanksgiving comes from the pilgrim chronicler Edward Winslow, who wrote, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labor. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Many of the Indians coming feasted among us and rested their gear with their great king, Massanot, of some 90 men, whom for three days we entertained. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you particulars of our plenty. It had been arranged the Mayflower Compact's role in cementing the colonists' dedication to each other and their mission was critical to their endurance that first winter. John Carver survived the hard winter of 1620 but died in April of 1621, and the colonists chose William Bradford to replace him under his leadership the Plymouth colony started to thrive. As more and more settlers arrived and colonized the surrounding areas, a general court was established. Each town elected representatives to attend the court, thereby creating an early representative government. The Mayflower Compact was important because it was the first document to establish self-government in the New World. It remained active until 1691, when Plymouth Colony became part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Mayflower Compact was an early successful attempt at democracy and undoubtedly played a role in future colonists seeking permanent independence from the British rule and shaping the nation that eventually became the United States of America. Today's show is dedicated to these brave men and women who did what was seemed almost impossible at a time that we'd be amazed. No cell phones, no TV, no internet, no electricity, no convenience, no indoor plumbing. And yet they voyaged across the Atlantic and established a colony that gave us birth to our independence. To them, we dedicate this show. And to all the men and women that followed behind, that fought for the revolution, be they politicians, citizens, soldiers, or military. So we dedicate to them and all for the birth of this nation through today and into its future, as well as to our first responders who defend us and protect us here at home, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to this, this song by Todd Allen Herendon, 
My name is America. May God bless each and every one, and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you.
All right, and we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeart. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash into the southern Um, We've got our guests calling in a little bit over half an hour. Uh, the first guest is going to be Jack Cashel, um, and you're breathing into your mic. <laughs> yeah, I can hear you. All right. Uh, Jack Cashel, the author of Unmasking Obama, the fight to tell the true story of a failed presidency. He's going to be talking about Obama's new book that just came out, came out this month, A Promised Land. Um, and oh, boy, <laughs> I read all of his articles on it. And uh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be uh a very, very fun. Obama knows how to write. <laughs> That's going to come into question. That's one of the questions we, we're going to be asking. Anyway, um, Trump did a uh, press uh, presser today. It was the first time he did since the election. Um, I didn't catch the whole thing, but oh my goodness, one of the media was asking him a rather arrogant, nasty question, and he blew up on the guy. How dare you talk to me, the president of the United States, that way? You don't talk to the president. And he finally turned around, and you could see he was pissed. He was pissed. So the media is getting a huge, huge backlash uh, because the way in which they've they've taken uh, they've carried the, the the broadcast on the election and certifying it. I mean, it, it, it's been a huge backlash. Well. They didn't show. I didn't. I didn't see it on camera. They only showed Trump's reaction. Yeah. Well, uh, I I don't know who the reporter is. Maybe if someone in the chat room saw that presser, also they put down the name of the reporter and what station. But uh, oh, oh, good lord! There was. I was walking through. We we have turned Fox off. I we had stopped watching large portions of it over the last several years. We would only turn it, turn it on for just certain individuals. But I was walking through, and we had Newsmax on, and there's the runner on there. Civil War in Fox News. <laughs> they, have, they have lost hundreds and thousands of viewers. She just lost me in England. She lost me. Yeah, and that's, it's, that's the whole thing. You know, people that you... Laura Ingram was the first one to call it for Trump back in 2016. She, in, matter of fact, she did that in 2015. Why she would jump ship now, I don't, I don't understand. And we're going to be talking to um, Jack Cashel about a lot of this stuff besides Obama's book. Um, but I, I don't understand it because Gore, they went through uh, legal fights for 37 days. The hanging chad. Yeah, over the hanging chads and other lawsuits that had they had imposed. Um, so we let it play out until it finally went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court made the final decision. However, we're not allowing the Constitution to play out. We're allowing lamestream media to determine what the election results are. Let it play out in the courts. Let it go through the recounts. Let it go under the scrutiny, the magnifying glass, the same way they did the hanging chads in Florida. And if it's necessary to go to the House for a final vote, fine. Or to the Supreme Court for a legal determination, fine. But let it play out. You know, why is it one 
thing goes for liberals, but not for conservatives. We allowed it to play out in the courts under Bush v. Gore. But they don't want to let it play out. So it, it just makes absolutely no sense to me. Now, one of the things that uh, Sidney Powell has in the uh, lawsuit that she has of massive voter fraud in uh, Georgia, uh, Doug Ross has a website, and it's uh, directorblue.blogspot.com. And he did a, a idiot's version, a breakdown for dummies, what Sidney Powell is getting at, of what has happened with these voting machines. And he has it's all done in graphics. So it's anyone that just doesn't want to wade through the tons of paperwork can go to his website, directorblue.blogspot.com. And it has infographic shocking allegations. And... It's titled A Summary of 2020 Elections Rigging Claims and Illegal Procedures. And he puts it down in just nine different categories. Well, there's three major ones, and each one has three subcategories. So the first one, illegal procedures. No chain of custody for machines and large bundles of ballots. Poll watchers removed and threatened and unprecedented voting pauses. Now, this got, looks like I got cut off a little bit. Um, the broken change of custody for machines and bundles of ballots. We typically receive the machines, the ballot marking devices, on Friday before the election with the chain of custody letter to be signed on Sunday, indicating that we have received the machines and accounts of the machines when received, and the machines have been sealed. In that case, they arrived at 2 a.m. on the day of election. They were supposed to be in place on Friday. And, and on 2 a.m., yeah. they were receiving the machines, and they were being told, sign the chain of custody letter. Well, where were these machines between Friday and 2 a.m. on Tuesday? And you're asking me to verify the chain of custody when it wasn't even in my presence. Uh, duh. Do you think there was something open for tampering and voter fraud here? Is that not amazing? The time frame is awful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Illegal. Second step, illegal procedures. Democratic majority counties illegally prevented Republican poll watchers from monitoring vote counting machines. Now, we already know there are court rulings that said, you know, Supreme Court, hey, there's this must be watching. This is part of a fair and balanced election. But instead, Democrat majority counties provided political parties and candidates, including the Trump campaign, no meaningful access or actual opportunity to review and assess the validity of the mail-in ballots. During the pre-canvassing meetings, while in the audit or recount, and they witnessed Trump votes being put into Biden piles. Witnesses testified there was no meaningful way to review or audit any activity, and there was no way to tell if any counting was accurate or if the activity was proper. This is huge. This is huge. 
Illegal procedure number three, he points out, large batches of pristine identical ballots, 98% for Biden. A large number of ballots were identical and likely fraudulent. Affluent observed, or, or the, the the person that's signing the uh, the affidavit, the affidavit observed a bunch of utterly pristine ballots. These different ballots included a slight depressed prefold, so they could be easily folded and unfolded for use in the scanning machines. There were no markings on the ballots to show where they came from or where they had been processed. These stood out. In my 20 years of experience in handling ballots, I observed that the markings for the ballots on these ballots, I'm sorry, markings for the candidates on these ballots were unusually uniform, perhaps even with a ballot marketing device. By my estimate in observing these ballots, approximately 98% constituted votes for Joe Biden. I only observed two, only observed two of these ballots as votes for President Donald J. Trump. Uh, this is a person, did I read it correctly? Who, uh, excuse me, done this for 30-something years? Yeah. No, 20 years. 20 years observing as, yeah, as a poll watcher. So this isn't someone that, you know, is fly-by-night and just... This is someone who's been doing every election for 20 years. So they're experienced, highly experienced. Now... Under the second one, um, the second uh, category, insecure voting machines. Okay. We have here, design permits operators to move, easily move votes between candidates. Audit logs, incomplete and insecure, and linked to foreign governments. And when we were hearing reports last week of people saying votes are being counted in Germany, France, and Canada, why? If it's against federal law, if it's against our Constitution to have a foreign entity interfere in our elections, why are these votes being counted outside of the United States? Any comment, Yanni? Just rereading it. Well, like I said, some of this print is cut off, so I'm just going to have to. Uh, um, yeah. Well, it's obvious. It, how, how can American, I mean, our election ballots be counted at a country where you can't do that? Well, they are doing it. Yeah, but you. They are doing it. The first one that acknowledged that was uh, Canada, no? Yeah. And Canada said, well, why are you letting us count the ballots? We don't let anyone else count our ballots. Yeah, they, they're very strict on theirs. Yeah. So the Canadians are turning around and goes, well, we don't allow others to do it, but that's all right. You send your ballots up here and we'll count them for you anyway. Hey, Justin Trudeau, get your hands off my ballot. Maybe it's because of the math they teach these days. <laughs> Common <laughs> core. <laughs> Expert Navid. How can you even pronounce this guy's last name? Kesha Varez-Nia states that Dominion software is vulnerable to data manipulation by unauthorized means and permitted election data to be altered in all battleground states. He concludes that hundreds of thousands of votes were manipulated. Russell 
Ramsled confirms that data breaches in the Dominion software permitted rogue actors to penetrate and manipulate the software during the recent election. He further concludes that at least 96,600 mail-in ballots were illegally counted as they were not cast by legal voters. Now, this stuff is really, really... I mean, Yanni, give me a hand here. Boy, this this is absolutely... Mind-blowing information that is coming out here. And everyone said Sidney Powell was crazy. But... It seems to me that this was already pre-planned all the way through. We're going to plan B or plan C if it's not going our way. This had to be already organized. It didn't happen in the last few minutes. One of the things I'm going to be asking Jack Cashel about... I have an article somewhere buried in here that there's another whistleblower that came out and said that he had infiltrated Antifa meetings and he has found um, that major players in media are directly involved with Antifa and in election tampering. So I see if I can find that article, but I, I I had had it pulled aside and then I shuffled papers around, and I don't know what I did with that. So just bear with me. Um, well, it's probably in the batch from your talk with Jack on. Anyway, well, anyway, but there's, there's a lot going on with this one. Um, also, the Thomas More Society's. Amistad project is claiming to discovered over 150,000 ballots that had potential for fraud. And they filed an emergency petition in Wisconsin Supreme Court this past Tuesday uh, regarding the state's unofficial election results. Uh, they believe the discovery may have a major impact on Wisconsin's declared winner. Town Hall reports we have identified over 150,000 potentially fraudulent votes. Uh, more than enough to call into question the validity of the state's reported election results. Phil Klein, director of the project, said in a statement, moreover, these discrepancies were a direct result of Wisconsin elected officials' willful violation of state law. The lawsuit claims election officials counted ill-eligible ballots, uh, failed to count ballots that should have been counted, and the number of counting errors and irregularities took place. Uh, This is another thing with the Georgia um, election. What is interesting on this one is that you've got the runoff election. But on those ballots, those same ballots, those runoff ballots, is the presidential election. So basically people are going to be voting a second time for a presidential candidate as well as doing the state runoff because that's how how the ballots were designed. Now – they're finding that people crossed over into Nevada and Wisconsin and illegally voted. But in Georgia, you can move into the state, register to vote the same day, and vote, provided you have the proper documentation. Because my sister last month moved in there, and she didn't have uh, one document. I don't know if it was her birth certificate or what, um, but they wouldn't let her register to vote because she was missing a piece of documentation. Uh, but otherwise, if you've got everything in hand, you can cross over the state line, claim you just moved in. You know, 
rent an apartment for a week, and then move out after the election. That in itself is vote tampering, election tampering, which is illegal. But let's find out how many people have actually done this. How many people crossed over into Georgia to cast an illegal vote? And then once they cast the vote, left. Put them in quarantine. <laughs> yeah, tell them to try that in New York City. <laughs> With de Blasio setting the sheriff up on the... Oh, geez. Is there anything even more nuts out there with de Blasio locking down uh, New York City and anyone with out-of-state plates? Now, heaven forbid you just moved there and you haven't changed the license plates on your car yet or your vehicle, your motorcycle, and you're just trying to get home. You know, you're going to be told, uh, well, you you have to go into self-quarantine. You have to take the COVID test. First off, you have to prove you took a COVID test within the last three days, uh, negative. And then once you're here, in another three days, you have to take another COVID test. So you have to go into quarantine for a total of six days. What happens to the businessman that flies in at noon, has lunch with his clients or with his, his, his staff, and flies out that same day? How do you self quarantine someone like that? Well, what about renting a car? It's got out-of-state plates on it, right? How many times we we rented a car right. in New York with out-of-state plates on it? Lots. Lots. I, it, it, it has gone into insanity. You no, know, I live here with my tag on It's a rental car from, from um, you know what place, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> Almost some of it. I, it is absolutely absolutely insane and it's all in blue democratic states and i'll tell you what you're going to see a a uprising because already in manhattan last week they were burning their masks in manhattan so you know uh you see in california they're saying oh no we're not locking down people are starting to revolt now the question is is how much of the government is going to tamp down and now Cuomo has turned around and says, I've put these uh, procedures in place, these executive orders, and if you fail to comply, you will be arrested and fined. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not a law. You need the legislator to pass a law to be enforceable. You may have a civil penalty, but even that comes into question because he's not king. He is a duly elected governor. And I think it's time that people call for the recall of Newsom and Cuomo and de Blasio. It started, hasn't it? I know there's one out there for Newsom. I saw a hashtag recall Newsom. And I'm sure there's one out there for Cuomo. Uh, This is heating up. This is really, really heating up. The only scary part is that that exit is like from Portland. We don't want them coming over here. Yeah. You know, um, as I said, my sister just moved down in the area. She's down in Georgia. uh, And she moved into a a small neighborhood uh, just outside of Savannah. And we were over there yesterday for Thanksgiving. And you would be amazed how many people in Georgia are Trump. So I had there the Trump bumper sticker. I had my Trump hat on the front dashboard. I have a little bumper sticker on the car that says, I stand for the flag. And the kids were hanging around the back of my car. The neighbors were waving at us. 
know, one came over to talk to me, and he says, oh, yeah. And I made the comment. He was also a former New Yorker. He came down for like 40 years ago. And he says, I love the saying, we don't give a damn how you did it up north. <laughs> so, I mean, when I, when I drove through the neighborhoods, you don't see Biden signs. No, you really don't. don't. And actually, just the other day, for the first time, I saw someone with a Biden, um, a current Biden-Harris bumper sticker, but he had it on his dashboard, not on his bumper sticker, which means he doesn't have much confidence about putting putting it on his bumper sticker and standing up for what he believes in. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we, we do have a lot to talk about, but we're going to take just a few minutes break. And uh, just doing that, I'm going to... Um, Hmm. I'm just going to turn around and do Big Don. I don't think I have that. I don't think I downloaded that. I I, I wish I did, but I did not. Um, no. All right. So let me find out. Where, where did I just do this? Now you made me go past. All right. So we're going to give you Big Don. We're going to take a short break here. Morning on time, you can see him arrive. He stood six foot three, weighed two thirty five, kind of broad at the shoulder and fast with the lip. And everybody knew he didn't give no shit to Big Dog. Big Dog, Big Dog, Big Bad Dog. the dust and the smoke of this Democrat hell walked a giant of a man that the Patriots knew well, grabbed a sagging economy, let out with the groan and like a mighty oak tree, just stood there alone, big dog. I'm talking about our man, Donald Trump, he's the president now, and all you chumps can just settle down and stay in your safe space. We're about to make America a better place for big dog. Big Just to commemorate a great man, 
with these words on the slate. Thanks to the people's power, a man came from his tower to save America in its final hour. Big dog, big dog, big dog, big bad dog. And we are back, and I keep on messing everything up, so just bear with me. Um, and, uh, in about 10 minutes, we'll have our, our first guest calling in. Um, but someone sent me a list. Oh, it helps if I bring my microphone down, doesn't it? <laughs> it was up in the air. <laughs> oh, jeez. Right, how great. Uh, a friend of mine, Coach Collins, who was on the show recently, this is a gentleman that I've known for quite a long time, but he had a voter fraud checklist as of November 25th of 2020. All items are confirmed. Dead voters have voted. Oh, yes. They have found dead voters on the rolls, and they actually voted. Matter of fact, a friend of mine um, nearby, she runs a group called Engage the Right, and she went and worked with others to sit down and go through our voter rolls here in our county. And they found within the first week, 500 dead voters registered. Uh, she worked to have them removed, but how many still remained? So that that's a scary thing. And we went for Trump. So I, I just imagine the problems we would have had if she didn't even try to make that effort. And there were other groups, of course, the state that did the same thing, so which probably kept South Carolina, you know, a, a safer state to vote in. Um, there was corrupted tabulation software. We're already finding that the Dominion software can be manipulated. And as we saw in testimony before Congress just this uh, past week, uh, where they said there was amazing shifts in the graphs where everything would be trending for Trump, then all of a sudden, at a little click of the clock on the hand, everything switched, which is mathematically impossible. The statistics and mathematics, it's just impossible. And if you look at all the past history of how all elections have trended, it went away uh, completely apart from what trending history is. So we know, and it is being proven. Matter of fact, I used to have a clip on my audio clips here online, uh, but I think I may have removed it, uh, from a 20, 2012 where there was a um, – a machine technician who voted in court in Chicago, sworn testimony in court in Chicago that the machines can be manipulated and votes can be switched. Now, we knew this back in 2012, and yet, and yet we have allowed these machines to be used nationwide and especially in battleground states. I say go back to the old machines where you go in, you flip a switch, and it can't be tampered with. Or you even go back to an old paper ballot where you have, oh, wait a minute, we're already finding the, pamper, the tampering with the paper ballots. We know the tampering with paper ballots. And we're seeing that in Georgia. Oh, man. Um, the, oh, this one I, I forgot about. There is a Dominion executive that is part of Biden's transition team. Biden has on his transition team 
an executive from the Dominion Company that made these machines. And we know that Dominion has direct ties to George Soros and Hillary Clinton. They're finding direct ties to Clinton and Soros. Now we have it directly that we have a Dominion executive part of the Biden transition team. Uh, We also discussed this just a little while ago. Observers were illegally removed and blocked from seating the proceedings in multiple counting rooms. I should say in multiple states. We know it happened in Pennsylvania. We know it happened in Georgia. And I believe someone was reporting it happened also up in Michigan. So Wisconsin. All right. Now, there's also, as I just said, the mathematics just did not meet. There was mathematical impossibilities in results. I think I can talk. Um, At 3.24 a.m. November 4th, 143 Biden votes dropped. uh, 1,500, I'm sorry, 15,000 ballots miscounted in Georgia. Oh, that's 143,000 Biden votes dropped. And this is at 3.24 a.m. Who's voting at 3.24 a.m.? Most polling places are closed by either 7 or 9 p.m. I don't know of any polling place that is open at 3.24. And yet these votes just kind of like either miscounted or dropped into the wrong direction. Um, Votes then registered, more votes than registered voters in numerous counties across the country. Yet we saw that in Arizona and Nevada, a huge difference between the number of registered voters and the ones that actually vote. Amazing. It's all in battleground states. Oh, man. That's amazing. Numbers don't lie. That's where the math comes in. Numbers do not lie. And here we have legislation from the bench because there was a court order to accept fake signatures in Georgia and Pennsylvania. But Pennsylvania, uh, Trump on Wednesday had a favorable ruling where that had, that certification had to stop. And he's, allowed, he's being allowed to challenge. I believe that court case is being held on Wednesday. Um, multiple whistleblowers alleging voter fraud in multiple states. Well, I would add in here, multiple whistleblowers are being threatened. Death threats, death threats against the family, their jobs, uh, they're being doxxed big, big time. Anyone that's a whistleblower. We saw in Wisconsin uh, those two Republican uh, election officials were originally voting to not certify. They were intimidated. They had direct death threats. They had threats directly against their family and their property. And they got so intimidated, they switched their votes. And when they found there was more support than there were threats, they said, no, we're going to sign an affidavit saying we were intimidated, which is why we changed our votes. And we want to go back to our original vote of not certifying. This is, this is really scary. I mean, we are not a third world country, but this is the way this election is turning out to be. Hundreds of sworn affidavits describing criminal voter fraud activity in multiple states. 
At least 60 of these are deemed to be top-level, number four quality, and easily accepted in court. And here we go. Canada and Venezuelan ownership stakes in the voting machine. We already hear the news reports on how Maduro's presidency was protected because of these Dominion machines and how votes were changed. And we were told how the machines changed his vote to get him reelected and keep him in office. Voting system processing parts made in China. Why would we, you know, if anyone remembers uh, in 2016, well, actually it was 2015, I was asking why we were allowing machines for our elections coming out of France. And we, I, we did a direct tie to those machines coming out of France to George Soros. And the French work very closely with the Chinese in manufacturing. So why is this being a surprise to anyone? And why are we allowing foreign entities to influence our elections? I mean, isn't COVID bad enough, but we also have the virus affecting our voting machines? It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Democrat senators warned of potential voter fraud from defective voting systems. Yes, they did. They did. And we have the Democrats crying about these machines back in 2012 and 2016, saying we've got time to fix it before the next election. Let's do it. But now, now the machines are so disruptive so inaccurate, they're going, oh, no, there's no voter fraud. This is the worst than a John Kerry flip-flop, a lot worse than a John Kerry flip-flop. And, uh, oh, yeah, there was that clip that's been playing, especially up on Newsmax, where Joe Biden was saying, we had the greatest voter fraud system ever created. <laughs> I just, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, he finally got something right. <laughs> he finally spoke the truth. Now, do you think he has something to hide? A Dominion representative was scheduled to speak uh, to the Pennsylvania state legislative without being sworn in, without being saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but but the truth, so help me God, without being sworn in. But this guy was so frightened about what might be revealed about the company and the machines, he backed out. Hmm. A week uh, prior to this, prior to uh, writing this out, Coach, uh, on November 25th, he writes, uh, a week ago, Amanda Carpenter of CNN was frustrated that no one on the left has refuted Trump's bat crap crazy claims of systematic voter fraud. And no one has yet done that. Uh, (laughs) What letter is she living on? Now, there's a great website, and um, I'll see if I can put it up. I don't know if Facebook's going to allow me to to keep it up. They'll probably (laughs) ban me. Yeah, probably knock me off, but I'm putting it up first over here on Blog Talk Radio. And it is, here's, here is the evidence. That's the name of the website. Here is the evidence.com. 
And it is really, really pretty comprehensive. I'm trying to going to try to put it up over on Facebook. See if if they'll catch it. Go ahead, Jerry, talk. 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 Oh, well, we talk? Yeah, we got Debbie. Maybe those things on the cartoons you picked up there, you know they're going to knock us off. Okay. So, in other words, if it's something we read fast or listen quickly. <laughs> well, it looks like we've, we've got a guest calling in. So, let's bring back onto the show and welcome Jack Cashel, uh, the author of Unmasking Obama The Fight to Tell the True Story of a Failed Presidency. Welcome back, Jack, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Well, and a happy Thanksgiving to you, too, Anne. Thanks for having me on. I'm just trying to see how long before Facebook takes me <laughs> takes my page down, because I just put up on the live feed, uh, here's the evidence about the voter fraud. <laughs> just, it's gonna yeah, be I think ca- the word voter different. and fraud together is a, a guaranteed way to trigger the, uh, <laughs> the Orwellians uh, among us, you know. Oh man! I, it, every day it gets crazier and crazier and crazier, and yeah, we're going to talk about you know what's going on with the election. But I first want to talk to you about uh, you're going into depth on Obama's new memoir, A Promised Land, that just came out. What was it? Not even two weeks ago. I uh, know, came out. Of, yeah, about about ten days ago. I've, I have read it. I'm. I had to take one for the team and read the book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's a kind of a chore because, A, it's long, uh, B, it's uh, tedious, and C, it's uh, it's more of a hagiography, like an auto-hagiography than a biography. Uh, for those who don't know what a hagiography is, it's a book of the saints, you know, a book of a saint's <laughs> life. And Obama, in, in his own mind at least, is a saint, you know. So. <laughs> well, it's another work of fiction. You know, soon to be made uh, no, by uh, to a movie. Right. Uh, it, it is in a somewhat less fictional than his uh, Dreams from My Father, which is almost pure fiction. <laughs> I mean, so in this case, he's recounting real events, but he's recounting them from a perspective that, you know, I'm not sure whether he's uh, willfully ignorant or just ignorant. Like he, as though he doesn't understand you know, I, I know he's visited, you know, at least 57 states, but I don't think he understands what goes on in about 53 of them. <laughs> wow, that's an understatement. That is a real <laughs> understatement. And it just, I'm, I'm looking for some reason my computer is misbehaving because it took down uh, the picture of you that I was supposed to have put up in here. Holy cow! I had I had you up here and it took it down. See that? I even have trolls coming into my computer and removing your picture. Oh my <laughs> goodness! You should feel honored. Oh, I am. I take that. I'll be flattered uh, to know that uh, I, I matter that much that someone would take my picture down. In fact, that's the way I feel whenever I get a a, a message blocked on Facebook or Twitter. You know, I mean, well, they're paying attention anyhow. You know, so they they know I'm here. <laughs> Now, this this book, A Promised Land, um, you write in your article, which I I thought was just hysterical because my husband loves Leave it to Beaver. Uh, You write, what Obama misses most is terrorist friend Bill Ayers. Without Ayers, editorial input, the book reads as though Ward Cleaver had written it about winning a seat in the Mayfield City Council, the style (laughs) that is flaccid. 
Oh, my goodness. You, you mean that Obama did not write Dreams for My Father? Yeah, he never put pen to paper there? No, he did put pen to paper. He just didn't do it very well. Uh, and he needed a major assist from Bill Ayers. And I was the one who broke that story in 2008. And needless to say, the major media, not just the major media, but our you know, more respectable conservative media wanted nothing to do with it. They just didn't want to talk about it uh, for fear that you'd be called a racist. Uh, Andy McCarthy, for instance, of National Review, did talked about it positively. And this is in October of 2008 when it could still have made a difference. And he got totally trashed, and then they, they took down the link. National Review took down the link to his article. Um, Breitbart talked about it. Andrew Breitbart supported me. And uh, on several different TV shows, they called him a racist merely for tweeting his support for my thesis. I mean, that's how bad it was to, to challenge uh, Obama uh, as an author. In fact, what's interesting uh, in the book, and this, this surprised me because uh, when – and I, and unmasking Obama, I talk about this. In fact, I begin the book with it. In 2011, I received a phone call from a guy named Michael Cohen. At the time, I had no idea who he was. I don't know how he got my number, but that was Donald Trump's lawyer, as he explained. And he wanted to know what I knew about Obama's birth certificate. And I said, I don't know anything particular about the birth certificate, but what I can tell you about is um, the fact that uh, Bill Ayers provided a major assist in writing dreams from my father. And so Trump went on to talk about that on, I saw him talk about it on Hannity and, uh, you know, saying that, uh, that Bill Ayers helped him write the book, blah, blah, blah. And although the media went ballistic over his birth certificate claim, they avoided all mention of the fact that he had challenged Obama's authorship of the book that launched his career as a literary genius. So it would really surprise me to see that Obama raises the issue in a promised land, you know, uh, and uh, he takes, uh, you know, he said that in, and Trump did not, not only did Trump talk about birth certificate, but he claimed that uh, Bill Ayers, the guy in the terrorist in the neighborhood or whatever, uh, uh, wrote my book, you know. So I said, wow, good. I got under his skin. So, yes, he did a great help. Uh, from Bill Ayers in writing his book. In this book, uh, Promised Land, he had not help from Bill Ayers because the book is stylistically not very interesting, but a lot of editorial help. He even acknowledges as much. Uh, the ghostwriter on Michelle's book, uh, I keep Sarah Corbett, I believe her name is, was uh, a principal writer on this book as well. So, And yet it's more him. I mean, it sounds like his voice. It sounds like the kind of self-flattering stuff that he has been and would be saying about himself. What's, what's curious about it, though, Ann, is just how utterly contemptuous he is of political conservatives. Uh, it, every page drips with it. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Is he a Nobel Prize winner? Yeah. yeah no peace prize. Nobel yeah. Peace Prize winner. Before yeah. he even took this office. Is, by the way, the same guy who's, who started his, who said in his 2004 convention speech, you know, his breakthrough speech, he said, there's no such thing as a conservative America and a liberal America. There's United States of America. Well, there sure is a conservative America, and Obama has nothing but contempt for it and those who represent it. Well, you know, what I, I see now is that as he's coming out to campaign for Biden, you actually see the true side of, of Obama, the side that we've yeah. always been yelling and screaming about. And we've been saying, this is who the man really is. And suddenly the left is shocked that... This man who is who is for everyone, 
is suddenly only for a section of America? That's right. And that section apparently uh, does not include Hispanics. Uh, and Obama got kind of scolded on this one because he came out the other day and said, you know, uh, he was talking about how many uh, Hispanics voted for Donald Trump, you know, record numbers for a Republican. And then he goes, well, I guess, you know, some of them are evangelical Christians and, and they care more about uh, the fact that uh, they care less about the fact that Obama put people in, uh, Trump put people in cages than they do about things like uh, abortion, you know, and gay marriage. Well, first of all, Trump's never even talked about gay marriage. He has supported abortion. And then uh, what the Washington Post did in a curious article in which they sort of took Obama to task for saying this, for further alienating the base, the Hispanic base, he's saying they, they listed some of the comments made by Hispanics who had read this article. And, uh, and some of them were really blunt. They'd say, okay, you fool, you're the one who built the cages. You know, several of them put them, you know, scored them on that, and, uh, you know, which is true. The cages preceded Donald Trump as did the immigration policy. And, uh, and then, you know, but the idea that Hispanics make a mistake by having convictions about things like abortion when they should just be, uh, in a sense, yielding to liberal eyes on, Obama, on Trump's putting people in cages. Uh, he found that, uh, you know, appalling, and he couldn't deal with it. But that's the man. He's, there's a lot of contempt there. It's buried, but it's not that far beneath the surface. Well, you know, I, what I'm finding is as I talk to people, I'm finding more and more of them saying, I'm a former liberal, and I voted for Trump. Yeah. And, right. and I had asked this many times. Um, a friend of mine, Leon Wynn, tried to uh, run against uh, Clyburn here in South Carolina, and he's a Baptist minister. And I asked him, uh, Leon, why is it that we don't vote our moral values? Because if, if you turn around and you ask them you know, what they believe in in their faith, it's everything conservatives yeah. stand for. He went right. to an NAACP meeting, and he related to me when I asked that question. He goes, I went to an NAACP meeting, and he said – by the time I'm going to walk out of here, every last one of you is going to be a Republican. And I'm going to ask you three questions. Right. Do you believe in marriage between one man and a woman? And to a man, everyone raised their hand. Do you yeah. believe in the sanctity of life? Every last man raised his hand. And do you believe in keeping your own money and government getting out of your life? Every last man raised your hand and he said, congratulations. Welcome to the Republican Party. We <laughs> asked this question Back in 2010 and 2012, and I think yeah. the question finally made its way across the nation, and they're going, oops. Yeah, you know, in fact, uh, Trump had uh, uh, 12%, uh, according to the exit polls, 12% uh, take of the uh, African-American vote. It was probably higher because I imagine if you're coming out of a poll and someone, that, you know, in a black neighborhood and someone's asking you, did you vote for Trump? You're probably less inclined to say yes than, than you would. But nonetheless, despite that 12 percent thing, uh, in, the, uh, in the cities where the vote mattered, like in Milwaukee, for instance, there were 25 wards in which uh, Biden got 97 percent or more of the vote. Um, that they were counting. I don't think they were counting on that high a percentage to come back because it reflects badly on the numbers they manipulated. And I am among those who proudly and boldly will say the election was stolen. I think it's going to be unstolen, too, but we'll see. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, because in his book, uh, Barack Obama writes, few for millions of Americans spoofed by a black man in the White House. Uh, of course, the rest of the statement is cut off. My printer cut it off. You, you, he was saying that white Americans were afraid to have black Americans, and yet you write in your article in Chappaqua County, um, they voted overwhelmingly for Barack Obama, and the population is only 2% black. So if white Americans right, and this is so 2008. Afraid- yeah. Right, 2008, the, the residents of Chautauqua County, which is where I, I spend a big chunk of my summer, it's in southwestern New York, voted for Barack Obama. By 2016, uh, they were giving Donald Trump a 22% majority over Hillary Clinton. And for Obama, this was proof that the white man, white, uh, a black man in the uh, White House sent the Americans into a panic, right? No. They, you are no more black in 2008, Barack, than you were in 2016, you know. And Hillary may have uh, people, but it wasn't because she was a woman. You know? It was because she was utterly corrupt and, you know, and, so, you know, and sort of a closet socialist. Um, no, it, it's, it's an amazingly hostile and unknowing attitude that he has towards uh, middle Americans. Just doesn't get us. Uh, as he's never had any experience with this, you know, so he probably believes what he reads in the New York Times. That's probably, you know, and if you don't read the New York Times, then, then you know, what good could you possibly be? Well, the truth is coming out about the slant of the New York Times, but, you know, my husband and I, having been former New Yorkers, used to get it all the time. And after yeah. a while, it's like you can't even read uh, the book section. It was so slanted to the left. And, you know, you thought for a short while that they were fair, they were equal. But if you look at the history of the New York Times by its founder, Sidney Oaks, who happened to have been Jewish, but he was a segregationist uh, who ended up owning the Chattanooga Times. And that policy followed through when he went to the New York Times. And it means so much that no one even uh, talks about here is a man of Jewish heritage, but was also anti-Semitic at the same time because he refused to write about the Holocaust, or actually the newspaper refused to write about the Holocaust, and they refused to acknowledge the SS St. Louis that was turned away from American shores and was sent to Havana, Cuba, were the Jewish refugees were sent back to Europe and many of them ended up in the very concentration camps they sought to escape. The New York right. Times is not a friend of minorities. No, uh, you can uh, tell that to the Ukrainian, the five million Ukrainians killed by Stalin, you know. The, uh, the, the New York Times reporter at the time, Walter Durante, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for ignoring uh, what was up to that point the greatest hol- hol- genocide in history. You know, I mean, uh, literally won a Nobel Prize uh, by covering it up. And then he came back, and he was so influential, this is 1933, that he got FDR to uh, recognize the Soviet Union. Up until that point, we had not. Uh, so they have a long history of, of, you know, of bad journalism. And now it's become standard. You know, they're no longer a serious newspaper. And which brings us back to the person – Oddly, other than Trump, whom Obama uh, shows the most contempt for in his book, A Promised Land, and that is Sarah Palin, right? I mean, just that, it just, 
seems so unseemly. It's just out of the blue and misogynistic that he would go after her the way he does in the book, in a promised land. Uh, it's just, it is really curious. And those who want the true story of Barack Obama, I would recommend my own book, Unmasking Obama. Make a great Christmas gift, by the way, for those in your family whom you love and hate even better. Because <laughs> uh, uh, you're not going to find the truth in the promised land. It's simply not there. Any story and that, you know, like uh, the book, it only goes up to, it ends with this celebratory capture of Osama bin Laden, which is, I was afraid is where it would end the first volume. We have another volume coming, but already uh, Brian Terry has been killed. Uh, uh, the border guard whose death started the uh, fast and furious scandal. No mention of fast and furious, no mention of the IRS suppression of the tea parties, no mention of Obama's, uh, rating of, uh, of surveillance of uh, American journalists like James Rosen and the Associated Press uh, people who were reporting, uh, which became a minor scandal at the time. It would have been major if it was anyone else. No mention of any of those bad things. I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, what's not in there, <laughs> I could write a book about. In fact, I am writing a book about what's not in a promised land. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's amazing how the media will ignore all those things. And I had just started up the podcast uh, at the time that Brian Terry was killed. And being retired law enforcement, I always want to know what's going on, why something happened. And when I read that story and then I started to do a little bit more digging and I found some of the websites that were starting to bring the story up, uh, I right. would start talking about it long before mainstream media was doing it. And Cheryl Axenson was writing her articles yes. about it. Um, right. In uh, fact, what in, about, in, uh, I was going to say in my book, in, in Unmasking Obama, the heroes of my book are the very people, just like you're talking about, is the Second Amendment bloggers in Arizona who discovered that story. And they got it from the uh, people inside the ATF who were leaking to them. But you're right, it sat for months before the major media picked it up. And if it hadn't been for Cheryl Atkinson, they might never have picked it up. Uh, and, of course, to her job and, you know, in her privacy, because they began to cyber pillage her house. Um, yeah, it was a shocking story. And, and it doesn't even make the pages of Obama's memoir, even though it had happened before the book ends in April 2011. Now, it's also when you talk about the IRS uh, of harassment of the Tea Parties, because we formed ours here uh, in, um, it was March of 2009. And during yeah. the first year, we kept on discussing among ourselves, should we incorporate, should we incorporate? And I kept on saying, no, don't do it. No, don't right. do it. Uh, right. At that time in California, there was a guy that was, I'm trying to remember what the name of the Treasury Secretary, uh, Geithner, Bill Geithner. Yeah, he would yeah. he made rub stamp, um, but he would over Guyton's name stamp tax cheat, and they went after him. The IRS went after him, and tried to destroy him and his company. And I looked at it and I said, you know, this is really stupid because if you really truly want to knock this guy out of business and prosecute him for a crime, defacing the currency, you're defacing a U.S. document. Now that's a federal crime. But instead, they yeah. used the IRS and saw that. And I said, if they're going to use the IRS as a military arm against us, don't incorporate. And we never did. However, no, you, three you, of my – You were wise to do so. Uh, Catherine Engelbrecht, who I talk about in Unmasking Obama, uh, did incorporate. Yeah. She had an organization called True the Vote in Texas, and the 
think the other one was like the Lone Star Patriots or something, but um, yeah. she and her husband faced 22 separate audits, you know, before uh, finally she ends up suing the IRS successfully, but it took years. Yeah, and, and, uh, along with my friend and Diane. killing the uh, Tea parties was, was his way Diane of getting Bell. reelected in 2012. Yeah, it was Diane Belson uh, with, with the Myrtle Beach, along with Joe Dugan, the Myrtle Beach, that testified before Congress. They were good friends of mine. And Joe, my yeah. prayers are for Alfie. He's, he's battling cancer. Um, Diane Hardy, uh, Catherine, that you were talking about, she and I had a long conversation, then I had her come on the show. I, I was in the center of all this as was happening. And as I was watching the other two uh, tea parties next door to me in corporate, I said, don't do it. They no longer yeah. exist. They couldn't handle it. We're still up. We still meet. <laughs> We're still here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, good for you guys. Uh, uh, it because it was a uh, it was a great movement. I, I I was there at its uh, genesis too. I remember going to the first Tea Party meeting in in Kansas City where I lived, and uh, it was in I believe it was in April, probably April fifteenth, two thousand nine, for the you know the tax day. And the, the, a 19-year-old co-ed organized it, right? She expected 200 people, and 5,000 people showed up. And uh, then, of course, the media started saying it was all astroturfed, and it was all organized by the Koch brothers and whatnot, you know. But you were there at the beginning. I was there at the beginning. We know it was the, probably the most um, spontaneous and effective uh, populist outbreak in uh, recent American history. Yeah. Like Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, it was like like Woodstock for adults, and without getting a you know, no one got high. We saw if they did, it was you know not on not part of the package, but um, and it was also provided the base in many ways for uh, Trump's uh, uh, ascendancy in 2015-16. Yeah, because you know we turned around and we gave support like to Mitt Romney, and then when he saw saw the way his campaign went. We said, no, we're no longer going to turn around and let them say, you're going to nominate this person. We're going to tell you. And I think that's where the grassroots really came from. Because even though many of the Tea Parties don't exist, these people have gone out into other organizations, uh, whether it's a 912 project or Engage the Right or half a dozen right. others conservative groups out there. They're still out there. And we're still and talking they were, to you know, each other. Right. They, they formed the base for uh... – Trump's uh, victories in the primaries, which are shocking regular Republicans, you know. Um, yeah. In fact, very few Republicans I know voted for Trump in the primaries, myself included, I'll be honest. But uh, I uh, quickly began to see the reason why. Yeah. I, mean, I understood oh, immediately why he, was, uh, why he was popular, and that is he refused to back down. We were so used to our uh, political leaders, you know, bowing and scraping and apologizing that it was totally refreshing to see someone who didn't do that. Absolutely. And we see the the contrast between the Bushes, the Clintons, and Obama, and with Trump. Uh, He may not have the most graceful style, but he (laughs) does get the job done. And I didn't elect him to be a graceful swan. I elected him to get a job done, and I think that's what America realized. We right. knew and, um, if you're from New York, you know what it takes to get a building built in Manhattan. <laughs> you got uh, You don't get there by being a diplomat, you know. So, and, and where in New York you're from, man? Where's your uh, where? Where are you guys from? 
Well, originally I was growing up on Long Island. Um, uh-huh. I owned a business and managed some businesses, and I walked away from that to work in Brooklyn in the 90 precinct on patrol. Oh, okay, very good. Well, my father was a cop, so I have uh, sympathy for you guys. So, um, and well, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, so you know I know what it's like. Uh, you're w- well advised to be in South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. My mom's from Jersey, uh, and she left yeah. New York to go to the Virgin Islands. Go figure. Anyway, um, <laughs> your book, Unmasking Obama, is it, it, it's so well-timed to also counter what Obama's doing. And when do you expect to have part two to come out? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I, the, what I'm doing, what I'm working on right now is really like an extended review of uh, a promised land. You know, which would come out in book form in probably I don't know, probably about four months, um, maybe just an ebook form because it's uh, you need a corrective. The, the major media will not provide it. You know, they're sucking up to Obama like they always have. They've so lost their way. I don't know how they get out of bed in the morning. I really don't know how they get out of bed and look at themselves in the mirror and say, "I'm a journalist." No, you're a clown. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. You betrayed your profession. You betray your profession every day. Every day you go on TV and say, uh, Donald Trump has claimed there's fraud in this uh, election without any evidence. Every time you say that, you're making a fool of yourself. Uh, do they not get that? I mean, how much evidence do they have to see before they begin to at least say, without overwhelming evidence maybe, and, and put an adjective in there, or without evidence that can overturn the election, but don't, don't embarrass us, don't embarrass yourself, don't you know, disgrace your profession by falsely claiming that there is fraud. No, there, of course there was fraud. The question is how much, how do we, and how do we, uh, how do we reveal just how much there was so convincingly that even the Democrats say, okay, we got caught. Yeah. Caught with a pants down. Then again, you have with Obama going on his interview for his book tour with Scott Paley on 60 minutes. And he asked the softball question, what is your advice in this moment for President Trump? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, that was embarrassing. That he would, A, he would ask that question, and B, that Obama, and, and that when uh, Pelley listens to his answer, and he doesn't come back and say, you know, while Trump was going into the White House, you guys were actively plotting to sabotage his presidency, you know, using uh, spies, surveillance, FISA uh, applicants that have been fraudulently uh, composed. That's what you were doing during the transition. So the fact, the fact that you were there and that you shook hands with Melania is not a major stroke on your side, you know? You know, well, we, I, people forget about Bush v. Gore with those hanging, hanging chads. You know, I thought right. I'd never saw an election as silly as that, but this right. one really it by the cake uh and you know don't forget when the clintons were leaving the white house they took all the g's and w's and b's off the typewriters right do you remember that it's a sabotage they they stole the furniture as well you know i mean really they uh, they took it up to their uh hillary took it with her when she went up to chappaqua wherever she lived in new york you know uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and there's this article after article about, you know, on, on our side talking about the fraudulent ballots. And you've got the Thomas More Society 
uh, the Amistad Project that discovered over 150 right. ballots in, uh, I believe this was Wisconsin. So we're seeing yes. challenges in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. Am I forgetting one? Uh, let's see. Um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Michigan. Michigan, Michigan okay. Pennsylvania, yeah. Wisconsin, uh, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. Those are the six. Well, now, a, a friend of mine, um, she's the uh, uh, vice chair to our county GOP, sent me an email. And there's a mime going around with Sydney Powell in her lawsuit in Georgia, Awaken the Kraken. So she sent this yeah. around. And then yeah. attached to it was this guy by the name of Doug Ross. And he's got a website, a, a blogspot called directorblue.blogspot. And uh-huh. he did this all in graphics, just basically putting out the key points in her lawsuit. Uh, yeah, I saw that. It and, was very well done. Yeah. Yeah. And she, he just breaks it down to three main areas and then three subtitles. And right. when you look at what is going on and you're going, oh, my God, now this is easy to understand. Any dummy, including including mainstream media, can understand it. Do you right. think it's going to take legs? Do you think Sidney Powell finally has the hammer that's going to smash this open? Well, you know, I tell you what's, I think what is encouraging is that on our side, other than the like the John Kasichs of the world, uh, everyone's all in on this. You know, I mean, uh, other than we know there's a few exceptions of people saying, "Oh, let's just move on." You know, but we've we've known those people have been. The weak sisters from the beginning. Um, no, I, I just met with a group of my friends this morning, and and everyone's kind of upbeat and energized. You know, <laughs> they think we think we're going to win. You know, we think for sure that we will expose what they did and embarrass them into if they even if they walk away with this prize of the presidency, it'll be so diminished that it'll be you know four years of comic relief. Well, you know, we saw going into. Trump's first term, no one thought he was going to be elected. You had all mainstream Republicans going, no, this is going to be the outcome of the election. It's not going to be Trump. It's going to be this person. It's going to be that person. And every last one of them had no idea the red wave that was going to come up and hit them in the butt. And I have a funny feeling, this call for concession, they're going to see another red wave. I've been hearing people I think it was Joy Villa saying that this weekend, tomorrow, there is going to be Trump support rallies all across the nation again. Yeah. And, you know, let's face it, there was a, a red wave in 2020. I mean, you don't, it's the first time in history that a, uh, the presidential winner has negative coattails of the, the kind of negative coattails that Biden had. You know, yeah, they focused their votes where they needed them. But around the rest of the country, Democrats saying, hey, how come you didn't cheat on our behalf? You know, why are we losing a dozen congressional seats? Why are we losing uh, uh, legislative seats all across the country in states? Why did we lose the Senate and the House in New Hampshire? You know, why did we not gain in the Senate, despite the fact that we had, you know, there are twice as many vulnerable Republicans as Democrats? You know, why did 18 out of 19 bellwether counties vote for, public, vote for Trump by a margin of 15 points? Uh, no, there's a lot of uh, skullduggery here, and it's just a question of exposing it in time. And to me, that time isn't necessarily the December 14th. To me, that time is January 20th. Uh, because if we can 
they need to know it has to be in their face so substantially that for a Biden to get sworn in has to uh, embarrass them all, or at least embarrass those who are capable of being embarrassed. And that's not well, many you know, people when you think about it on their side. You know, when you get down to it. No, and, and we also picked up two new seats in California just this past week. So we still yeah, have yeah. seats turning. So I'm, I'm not right. sure if anyone knows what an accurate count is to the House yet. Does anyone no, have and, and that it's like, uh, I think they, what, picked up like four seats in New York State, right? Uh, mm-hmm. See, in New York State was interesting because uh, they didn't try to steal it. They presumed they'd get it, you know. But uh, And they did. But the margin of victory for Biden and, and New York State is only about 10 points. For Hillary, it was about 25. And uh, the uh, and they were losing house seats. I mean, New York State, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in New York State. Once you leave Metropolitan New York, essentially in any direction, you're going into a, the middle of America. You know, it's all red other than little outposts around the various cities like uh, Buffalo, say. But uh, the rest of the state is, you know, not only just red, but, you know, 70 to 30 red. Uh, so it's, uh, it's encouraging. And even Staten Island, you know, two-thirds, you know, they won, Trump won easily in Staten Island, won easily in Suffolk County. Um, so there is uh, hope and it's, uh, uh, better, you know, there is such thing as a moral victory. We already have that, but a real victory is always better than a moral victory. So we need to push for that. Well, I, I think most of the people on Staten Island want to succeed from New York city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But where do they go? <laughs> New Jersey? <laughs> uh, that's the problem for them. I mean, there's no place to go. Maybe they could just drift down and attach themselves to North Carolina or something. You know? <laughs> no, or if we, the we have to say Columbia can get it become its own state. Why not Staten Island? You know? Well, we we have a saying down here: we don't give a damn how you did it up north, <laughs> which is why I <laughs> yeah, left. You're right. I left days before Hillary was sworn in as senator for the first time. I said, "No, I'm yeah, out okay. of here." Well, your timing was good. <laughs> that would have yeah, been no, I, I, no, there's there's so much that is going on in this 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 voting system and the voting fraud. Uh, a friend of mine, he goes by the the nickname Coach Collins, um, and he puts down a fantastic list. Just just ta- just putting down a quick list of of what has gone on, and when you look at the infam- influence of the foreign governments in our election systems. We were discussing this earlier, my husband and I. I was like, wait a minute. Uh, Canada is part of one of the countries counting our votes, and yet Canada openly said, we don't let anyone interfere in our elections. We don't get the machines from overseas, and no one from overseas counts our votes. But anyway, send your ballots up here. We'll count them for you. Hello, Justin Trudeau. We got nothing to do. Uh, You know, no one cares about our elections, so we'll count your elections, you know. You know, and and the uh, the accounts are coming from, I believe it's France, Germany, Canada, and somehow or other Venezuela. Yeah, uh, is, is there's a role model for you, you know. He's a model of a, a, a free democratic election. Yeah. yeah. Now, also, the parts for the voting machines came from China. Oh, uh-huh. geez, you know, you, we got a problem with that one. Didn't we pull 
any manufacturer of our military hardware out of China recently because we were afraid of their tampering with our our systems? Yeah. No, that's uh, yeah. They, uh, I, I, uh, I, you know, it'd be nice to uh, see the someone put together a the whole summary of this and and some sort of video form where even the people who don't want to know will be forced to know what happened. And how long will that stay up on YouTube? Fifteen minutes? Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm arguing for the people to keep their DVD players because, you know, in many ways the, uh, the, the, cons- the revolution, information revolution began not with the Internet but with the VHS uh, player because for the first time, think about this, and this is the early 1980s, that individuals could see video images in their homes they were not controlled by three uh, networks out of New York. So, mm-hmm. and that makes a huge difference because as, as powerful as print is, uh, video is uh, can be much more compelling. And that is when I think people began to coalesce, uh, develop their own voice and their own. In fact, in the in uh, unmasking Obama, I talk about this as the, what I call the Samizdat, which is the the Russian word for the underground press. These are the heroes of my book. Uh, the people who did the real reporting. I mean, and during the Obama years, those people were almost all uh, either bloggers or independent journalists or talk radio people or, you know, they were not part of the major uh, media establishment. In fact, the major media broke not a single story about Obama that was worth uh, worth talking about. There was the word scandal that was not breathed for eight years. It allowed, you know, when Obama left, he was, and uh, Bob Biden was talking about it. Uh, the New York Times was talking about it. Whatever. How remarkable. Eight scandal-free years. This is incredible. But they were allowed to think that way because they only looked at their own media. They didn't look at the information that was coming from outside them, which meant that uh, gave them, left them with gaping holes in their knowledge base. I mean, I suspect there's people at the New York Times who don't even know yet that the Mueller uh, investigation came to naught. <laughs> you know, they probably think it's still ongoing. They are that clueless. Uh, and I, sometimes you think that they possibly be, but then you see the kind of questions they raise, like at press conferences, and, uh, and you say, yes, they can be. They can be that ignorant. I mean, it's the first time in probably recorded history that the average guy in the street knows more, literally, than do... Uh, the people who are controlling our information flow. And that's the problem. The information flow is now going to social networks where they are controlling it. And that's right, even scarier. Right, they can't scary. fully control it. No, right. We know that. And yet their efforts to uh, to control it are exposing them for who they are. And they can't control it. Even It's beyond their power to control. They can censor. They can shut down. They give people a hard time. I know like my... My friends at the conservative treehouse, for instance, have just been booted off WordPress after 10 years. I mean, you don't expect people like WordPress to uh, to be in on it, but they kind of all are. I'm on WordPress. I hope they don't boot me. But, you know, there's other places to go. That's where why Parler has become so popular so quickly, uh, because it promises to be unlike the others. And so in a, in a relatively free marketplace, yeah, there are other, we'll always have other ways to get around them. We just had to work harder at it, that's all, you know. I mean, as Jack Dorsey said in 2016, 
if he said, I, he said, if I had known that Twitter would get Donald Trump elected president, I never would have invented it. Well, he did. And it's too late <laughs> now, Jack. So there you go. I know you won the Rasputin look-alike contest this Halloween, but, you know, it's not going to get you that much further. It's not going to buy you happiness. No, it's not. But then again, with the new social networks popping up, it's more like trying to whack a mole by trying to control our that's, voice. That's- that's the perfect metaphor for it, whack-a-mole. You know? and, uh, and the moles always win. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 when Parler first opened up, you know, I did sign up, but for some reason I can't get back into the account. So one of these days I'm going to have to sit down and figure out why. Because I, did, I do have an account up there. It's one of the original ones, but I just can't access it. So you I've guys have Parler. Uh, you know, it's, not, it's, it's an imperfect system right now. Um, I, for instance, I can't download it onto my desktops, my desktop Mac. I got it on my cell phone, but it's hard to put any information using your cell phone. I'd much rather use, you know, my Mac to like to do as I do on Twitter and Facebook. And I would not, I would not encourage people to leave Twitter and Facebook. I'd say stay there and, and just irritate people. You know. Well, that's that's what I do. Like my favorite saying is. I made a New Year's resolution about five years ago to piss off one liberal a day. And I seem to succeed. <laughs> well, you, that's not hard to do because they're easily pissed off. I will tell you that. But, you know, you know I, whenever, whenever I give talks, and especially when I'm talking about what the Sami is about, that is our underground media, people say, well, what can I do? I said, well, every time you, uh, you, you retweet something, you're a producer. You're a distributor of information. You're part of it. You know, you're making a difference. And uh, they, uh, you know, and a lot of people can be very, I know people who can, especially locally, you can be very effective just by using your social media, Facebook or whatever, even your neighborhood stuff, uh, even though you're going to, you know, you're going to irritate your friends in the interim, but it's worth doing. Now, you said you love visiting New York and... Historically. I could not believe. Well, in all the years I was a cop on the street, I never ran across a New York City sheriff. I didn't even know they existed. Yeah. No. But this one, one sheriff said he was going to for, put on the entrances to New York City uh, testing areas, and if you've got an out-of-state plate... Uh, you have to prove you've been tested and proved negative three days prior and then test again once you come in. So you have to be quarantined for another three days. Right. Have you ever heard of anything so insane? No, that that's totally city? insane. It's also killing the tourist industry in New York. Uh, I, I had to face this issue about, a, about three weeks ago. I I was upstate New York and I flew out of Buffalo to to Florida to visit my grandchildren. And I'm coming back into Buffalo, and I, I had heard that they had even made the rules even crazier before you could just ignore them. You know, you fill out – I didn't. they make you fill out a form saying, yeah, you're going to quarantine for two weeks. No, everyone no – one, no one quarantines for two weeks. No one enforces it. Uh, it's, it's pathetic. It's ridiculous. They, if you fill out the form online, they'll call you or text you every day to check on you, you know. But this time – when I get off the plane and there's no one meeting at the plane, I didn't fill anything out and I wasn't intending to, but as I'm exiting the airport where the, where, where all the people funnel through a, a chute 
protects the security, there were at least a half a dozen National Guardsmen stopping people, right? And mm-hmm. and making them fill out forms. And the, the forms are that, just as you said, you had to prove you were tested, blah, blah, blah. Well, I said, you know, as I'm thinking, I'm walking, I'm thinking, okay, what kind of lie am I going to tell them? I said, I'm not going to tell them any lie at all. I'm just going to walk right through. I'm going to make them stop me, you know? And I felt like the mm-hmm. kid in Midnight Express, you know, like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, I'm walking through. And there's National Guardsmen on either side of me, like, filling out forms. And I just say, I walk through. you got to stop me. If you don't stop me, I'm just going to keep on walking out to my car in the parking lot, you know? And that's what I did. No one stopped me. So that's what my advice to you, anyone who's flying into New York. Just keep on walking. <laughs> just walk right past them. They'll assume that you're someone important. Carry a clipboard makes it even look more official. <laughs> no, right? I, I tried to look as like as in control. I, I tried to look as unsuspicious as I could be. You know, just like I was a dignitary on my way to, you know, be uh, greeted by the mayor of Buffalo. I walking through there, you know. Uh, no, it's ridiculous, and it's. I felt sorry for these national guards. They're all young people. They they look like they're trying to do it, you know, be friendly and all. But uh, you can't be a friendly fascist, you know. I mean, you can, you know, at the end of the day, uh, no fascist is friendly, you know, because at some point they have to resort to uh, uh, violence if you're not going to cooperate, and and that will come quicker uh, rather than slower. It is a shame. You know, my mother back in March had a stroke and um, I had to go down and get her and it was a major stroke and I blew her back up here and I was supposed to transport her directly to the rehab hospital. But because the virus had broken out at that point and it was now the beginning of April, we had to self-quarantine and thank God we've got the concierge service for a doctor. He came over. Uh, did a test and had everything cleared within five days. Otherwise, we would have had to self-quarantine for 14 days. And if you have someone right. who has a major stroke victim, every day they are not being treated immediately after the stroke is months, months of work. Um, right, exactly. So yeah. currently we were able to get her in. But that's the only time I ever felt there, there was a restriction. Uh, now, we just drove over the border into uh, uh, Georgia yesterday to share um, Thanksgiving with my sister. And no one stopped this. No one's wearing a mask. Right. You know, and, and Georgia's economy is open. Ours is semi-open, yeah. but Georgia's is wide open. And you're not hearing about these massive panics. You're not hearing about the massive riots or anything like that. Everything's going along normal as in life. And, you know, in many ways, Trump was right about opening the nation back up. Sure. Oh, absolutely right. In fact, I've been driving a couple times this summer, two or three times. I drove across the country from uh, Kansas City, where I lived, to New York State. And uh, it's so refreshing to get out of the cities. You know, first of all, all you see along the highways are Trump signs, which is nice, you know. And, uh, uh, and then you, you'll stop in towns. Like the one town I've, I stopped in three times uh, this summer was Hannibal, Missouri, right? They, they might as well put a sign up and Hannibal says, Hannibal, a sign that doesn't, a town that doesn't believe in wearing masks. <laughs> you, know, so you go into <laughs> restaurants, people know even the help aren't wearing masks. You know, so I said, it feels like you're in America again, you know? And then yet when I come back to Kansas City, my office is in uh, the uh, – what I would call the Westport, it's a part of Kansas City called Westport. It's like, it's like the Capitol Hill part of Seattle, you know. So when in 
Capitol Hill was calling itself Chaz. I was calling my where my office is WAS, you know, for Westport Autonomous Zone. But then when they changed it to Capitol Hill Occupied Protest or CHOP, I couldn't go to WAP. I thought that I'd probably get lose my job if I said <laughs> I live in WAP. No, it's a, so I so I still live in WAS. Our office in WAS. Ninety percent of the kids, the young people, I say, first of all, they're all but a virtual immune. You know that. I mean, the, the survival rate among people under 20 is close to 100 uh, percent. Walk around with, outside with masks on. I saw a guy on a motorcycle once with a mask and no helmet. You know, I mean, I'm trying to make sense <laughs> out of these people, you know. So, in fact, I stopped this guy the other day. I said, why are you wearing a mask? Just curious, you know. Well, I was responsible, you know, just in case my uh, elderly great grandmother. I don't you know, stop it, stop it. I don't know. You know, so. yeah, that's itchy because uh, my husband and I were, we were driving around and we see a, a single individual in their car with the windows rolled up wearing yeah. a mask. We hysterical. We absolutely yeah, go hysterical. I, I find myself, I, I hate this is too strong an emotion, but it's the way I feel sometimes. I just feel disgusted when I see that, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I feel disgusted mm-hmm. because they are creeping out society as a whole. And, it's, and what's odd is that they're killing their own institutions. They're killing their own cities. I mean, most conservatives live in the suburbs or the exurbs or the countryside, small towns, where people are living their lives pretty much as they always have. Uh, in Lake of the Ozarks this summer, for instance, I don't know if you recall, there was a photo of a big pool party in May that shocked the you know, left half of America. But it was like an advertisement. Lake of the Ozarks this summer had twice the business they normally do, you know. Because <laughs> people wanted to go someplace where they could act like human beings, uh, and uh, and the people in New York City, which is just the exact opposite, it's like they're doing everything they can to kill that city, which is why they needed Biden to get elected to bail them out. But there's no money; we got to make up. We got to just print that money. Uh, it's going to be a mess. The next couple of years are going to be a mess, regardless. And uh, uh, I'm just going to try to move do my best to keep a good attitude and. You know, and keep on fighting. Oh, that's that's the whole thing. We've got to know that sooner or later we're going to come out of this on the other end. And when we do, I think there's going to be a public backlash because if there's ever another claimed pandemic, people are definitely yeah. not going to listen. They're going to turn around. No, no, no fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And people right, are going exactly. to go, no, as no. We approach the end of the season, end of the year, and we're seeing that the the deaths this year aren't higher than normal, you know. Uh, people are beginning to think, uh, more and more people are beginning to think. I was happy to see that, uh, Eric Clapton and Van Morrison doing a series of uh, records, anti-lockdown records, you know, so, uh, <laughs> which is encouraging because the celebrities to this point have been ridiculous as always. And, you know, I'm not, very few of them have stood up and, and in an odd way, they're the ones who suffered the most in terms of what they, of where they started and what they had to give up. You know, I mean, I've lived my life 99% as happily as I have in the past. The things I do, I, I haven't had to give up much. I mean, I don't have a private plane. You know, I don't fly off to you know Barbados or wherever. Uh, and you know, actually, if you're flying commercial, is if you've done it. It's a lot easier now because there's only half as many people there as usual, you know. If you're flying southwest, you don't even have to get your early birds anymore because, you know, there's not going to be enough people on the plane to fight you for the good seats. So, uh, but uh, 
you know, I, that's we all have friends. Yeah. Well, that's only if they we throw you off a Trump mask. Yeah. yeah but yeah. like I said, yeah. they'll let you fly as long as you're not wearing a Trump mask. Well, I, I have a Trump mask. In fact, that's the one I usually carry with me. I only wear it on the Trump side periodically when I'm in a place where I need to offend people. But on an airplane, here's what you could do, by the way. I, I usually bottle, buy a bottle of water before I get on, and then uh, whenever the flight attendant comes by, I'm sipping it. <laughs> so <laughs> they only come by every, you know, 15 minutes. So, you know, if I'm, at the last hour of the flight, I'm, I have an empty bottle in my hand that I keep putting up in my mouth. But it's, uh, anyhow. <laughs> Uh, it's live your life is my advice. Go out and buy unmasking Obama for all your friends for Christmas and live your life like a human being, like an American citizen. Well, absolutely. And then we all need to take our lives back from the government and, and say yep. you know, enough, enough, enough is enough. This is not what the constitution is for. And they're yep. violating it. In essence, in matter of fact, our local uh, county council, um, was trying to extend, quote, the emergency mask order, ordinance and making this emergency ordinance a permanent one. And when we caught wind of this, it goes, no, 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 no. First off, what you're doing is against the law. Secondly, right. you need to convert this and no longer use the word emergency. We went after them so hard that it expired this past month. And I've been able to go into my local hardware store without anything. And no one questions me. All into oh, the back of the hardware yeah, have a teammate, and no one they look at me, and I'll just keep the safe safe distance, no problem. You know, I'll step aside so yeah, you can pass yeah. me, no big deal. I'm not going to breathe on you, I promise. But the, never once well, have done this in, three times. In the Buffalo, in, in New York State, where I spend much much, much of my summer, um, every place you go, there's something on the loudspeaker. It's really big brotherish. I mean, you hear. Uh, according to Governor Andrew Cuomo, decree you have to do blah blah blah. But at the airport, they say this: if you cannot keep social distance at the airport, uh, you have to wear a mask. So I'm sitting there. Hey, no one's within six feet of me. I just take my mask off, and uh, and then I wait for someone to challenge me. And then I'll say, okay, listen to the decree here. What does it say? If you cannot keep social distance, you have to wear a mask. Well, I'm keeping social distance. So I sit. For, well, there's fewer people, so it's easier to keep social distance. They're killing themselves. They're killing our economy. Uh, they're crazy. We've always known they were crazy. We've always known they're corrupt. And in the last uh, year, uh, we've gotten to see just how corrupt and crazy they really are. And I hate to speak ill of half of American citizens. No, it's not half. It's one quarter who are ill. I mean, half are evil. Half of the half are evil. Half the other half are just ignorant. But um, they are—they are hurting themselves more than they're hurting us. Absolutely, absolutely. And not only that, they're hurting the people around them because if people are losing oh, sure. jobs, people yeah, can't there, there are grandmothers who go unvisited, you know, the, the grandchildren who go unseen, you know. Um, it's really sad. And I know we all know people like this who won't even leave their house. I got, I'm related to people like this. And, uh, you know, so, I have to admit, I do a lot of more home deliveries and pickups than I used to. Uh, I try to yeah. avoid going into the store unless I have to. Because, number one, before the mask mandate went into place, um, I would do the hand-washing, social distancing. But sooner or later, someone wearing a mask or a whole entire family wearing a mask will bump their shopping cart into your tail end. It's like, wait a minute. I thought we were social distancing here. The assumption that you're wearing the mask, you're safe, has actually proven to be untrue. People not wearing the mask, 
have less chance of getting the virus than someone wearing the mask. Yeah. And this is this yeah, the whole thing is brought in. I, yeah, I don't I don't like to go to store just to, a because before the mask mandates I'd get Karen often, you know, because I wasn't wearing a mask. Who do you think you are immortal? Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, and then once I had to start wearing a mask, I just didn't want to go any place where I had to wear a mask. You know, I have a friend who is so anti-mask uh, that he sends his wife to the store for everything. <laughs> she will she'll wear one. He says he refused to put one on and go anywhere. So he's, he's, uh, I, I admire I actually, that. You know? I actually did that to my husband uh, the other day because I was taking him home from a doctor visit. And uh, he had a hip replacement, so he's on a cane. So what I did was me. But he he was insisting on his cigarettes, and in order to go uh-huh. into the, the the little stop and shop to get the cigarettes, they won't let you in unless you wear a mask. And I normally yeah. have a face shield. And I, I'm not putting the damn thing on for your cigarettes. <laughs> You're going. By the way, do they have have they made masks yet with little holes where you can smoke through? <laughs> <laughs> He's thinking, not a bad idea. I'm going to get yeah, right. right. I mean, it seems like it'd be a little <laughs> counterproductive, but you know, you want to keep some of your freedoms. In fact, I uh, when they were imposing, I've never smoked. Uh, when uh, Kansas City imposed a uh, ban on smoking in restaurants and bars, I ended up as the leader of the anti-anti-smoking movement. <laughs> so, and I was a very effective because I was a non-smoker, you know, and never smoker. Uh, so I, was, I started a, a chapter called Non-Smokers Against Anti-Smoking, you know. So uh, I argued that if people liked, uh, were bothered by uh, restaurants in which there was smoking, they should go to restaurants in which there was no smoking. And I, you know, and giving, acknowledge that people had the right to uh, start restaurants in which smoking was banned. That's fine. That's their right. But don't have us ban everything because you want it banned, you know. I'm, uh, it's just one of those civil liberties that you, you know, they take a little one, they'll take a big one. It'll take bigger and bigger chunks. And by the way, kudos to our girl, Amy Coney Barrett for siding with the side of justice and the most recent Supreme court decision. Yeah. I, I missed that one. Uh, yes. Uh, the uh, Supreme court voted five to four to, to uh, overturn New York's ban on church services. Uh, excellent. And uh, excellent. Amy Coney Barrett was among the five. Roberts was among the four, but he's lost his leverage oh, now. Thanks. He's no longer the pivotal vote. So, uh, uh, you know, there's something providential about Ruth Bader Ginsburg exiting the scene just in time to get another uh, Supreme Court judge in. <laughs> Absolutely. I got to tell you one one true story. Um, I had owned a travel agency, and I had gone out to Kansas City. Now, are you on the dry side or the wet side? I'm on the Missouri side. Okay. Well, uh, the, the teeter. Go ahead. Uh, neither side is dry. I mean, Kansas used to be, but it's not. It hasn't been for quite a while. Oh, okay. So it's been a while. It's been a while because yeah. I know the TW Academy was on the dry side, and the hotel they had That's it correct. in because it was less expensive is on the dry side. So we would go over to the wet side all the time. So uh, yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful. Beautiful area, and it's been a long time since I've been there. But you know, I'm familiar with the area that you're talking about. So we've got a little cross history. Yeah, <laughs> did you talked work about last time you were on the show. Oh, did you No, I had my own travel agency, and we were learning oh, their computer system, which oh, we were installing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I have then, an issue with TWA also, as you know. So, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that was the yeah, dry but, side. Now it's it's everyone now every, you can drink wherever, but uh, uh, it's um, but but both all the local areas are controlled by Democrats. I mean, the, in the middle of the city, both on both sides actually. So they make it very difficult to live like human beings. So we shall see. Hey, I appreciate you having me on though, Annie. And uh, I would just remind uh, your people to uh, that unmasking Obama is available wherever they buy books. And it would make a great Christmas present, you know, for whomever. And they can go to your website, which is your last name, cashill.com. That's right, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com. You are correct. Well, Jack, have a very happy and blessed uh, weekend, and thank you. And, again, happy Thanksgiving. And you too, Annie. Keep up the good work, okay? All right. Thank you very much, Jack. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Check out Jack Cashel at Cashel.com and check his books out and other interesting things he does. Um, We have uh, not much left here to talk about because we've got the interview uh, with Peter W. Wood. Um, Right now, we don't have anything lined up for this coming Friday, but I will, as soon as I get stuff uh, together, put that down. Um, Just to give people a little bit of a boy up, um, there's several articles out here that I did want to get to, and I, I just forgot. I left them on the bottom of the pile. Uh, oh, this this is this is uh, interesting. There appeared this week at uh, BizPack Review. Tom Tilson wrote this back on, uh, two days ago. The title of the article is "Wisconsin Recount Participants Forced to Wear Poop Emojis Wristbands." Elected officials, not ashamed. Uh, This is true. Um, They gave them wristbands to show that they are part of the recount officials. And they were those little tiny emojis that look like a pile of smiling poop. Now, they're really taking their recount real seriously. Instead of saying, all right, we'll put the red bands on the Republicans, the blue bands on the Democrats, the uh, neutral will get a white or whatever. No, or say... um, this is these are paid participants, these are observers, you know, you know, do a little color separation, but no, they took it so seriously, they gave everyone these emoji poop wristbands. Yeah, that is actually showing to me some disdain. Uh, but yeah, and and I guess it makes a whole lot of sense. Foolish, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Cream. <laughs> I mean, you know, some people can laugh at it and some others can't, but, you know, that's that's what's going on. Before we start uh, with the interview with Peter Wood, let's uh, we got a caller coming in, uh, and let's bring the caller in. Come on, computer. There we go. Uh, you're on the air live. Yeah, you're on the air live with Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie, the Radio Chickadee. To whom am I speaking? Hi, this is Ralph. How are you? Hi, Ralph. You have a question or comment? Well, it's just, you know, the holiday was yesterday. More holidays coming up, and I'm just, uh, I'm pretty baffled that, uh, you know, with this coronavirus, they're trying to keep us apart. They're trying to tell us to uh, stay away from each other. I think it's crazy. Well, depending upon what state you live in, and like in California, you can't have 10 people there. Um, People that come to your house have to wear a mask. Uh, you have to social distance within your own home. They're telling you what to do in your home now. 
You get that. New I mean, York, what about our New constitutional? What about our constitutional rights? Gee, do we still have them? Do they right. still exist? Have we allowed them no. to continue? But that's what this last election is about, and this is what this election recount and challenge is about, to reclaim the Constitution. And it's about time we well, turn around you know, to uh, see that this war, on, this war on Christmas is really coming full circle now, because now they don't even want us getting together for it. No. No. He- heaven forbid you're going to have to sanitize that Christmas present before you pass it over. And by the way, there's going to have to be a table between you, and you both have to be three feet on either side before you can pass the gift, gift over. Right. I mean, it's Jesus' birthday, for God's sakes. I mean, you're going to see next is going to be no Easter. Yeah, and matter of fact, they were telling us for Thanksgiving, if you do gather together, no singing. Uh, That is how crazy it is. Oh, wait a minute. Let's not forget that Jersey, no alcohol sales in bars and restaurants. (sighs) You notice, too, you never hear anything uh, about avoiding Hanukkah. I find that very funny. It's only Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, you know, that type of thing. Or any Muslim holiday. Right. Yeah. Any Muslim holiday. Unf- I, want, I want turkey. I want grandma. I want grandma. And grandma. I want carols. I want singing. I want my rights back, you know? Well, what it's going to take for us is to violate their, quote, recommendations and continue with our lives as it is. And if they want to try to come after us, then bring me to court, baby doll, because I'm going to splash this across the headlines, and you're going to look like such damn fools. I choose. I really, you know, this year, I, for Christmas coming up, I, I I was really looking to bring home uh, my my boyfriend Dan and introduce him to everybody. I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. You know, like I said, time will tell. But we've got to get forward yeah, with gay, our interview. We're gay. We're proud. And we want to hold hands at the dinner table. That's all right. And I'm watching Thir- Miracle on 34th Street, whether they like it or not. Well, Ralph, we've got to go forward with our interview. Thank you for the call. And you have I mean, a so very... So my parents uh, think it's an affront, affront to God that I have a, a, a boyfriend? Well, Who cares it's your parents' power app- bottom? Uh, all right. Thank you very much. I know we just got hit with the troll. <laughs> so you know you're doing something right if you just got hit with the troll. Anyway, um, let's go forward with our interview with Peter. And I have to do a little switching woo here. So, folks, uh, sit back, relax. And quite honestly, this was pre-recorded because he could not be live with us on the show today. Uh, So we recorded this just two days ago. So here we go. Peter W. Wood. You're here listening live to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, iHeart, and all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm the hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my new co-host, who I'm trying to still break in after over 27 years of marriage, my husband, Yanni. And our latest victim in the batter box is uh, Peter W. Wood, who has a new book out, which is really, really important that we get everyone to read this. It's called 1620. A critical response to the 1619 project. And considering what the craziness that is going on in the world out there, this book 
I think is monumental. So welcome onto the show, Peter W. Wood. Good afternoon, Peter. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, I'm, I was I had on um, two shows ago. We were talking about the Mayflower Compact, and then when I got your book in the mail and I started reading it, I'm going, Oh, good lord. Honestly, I was like, the Lord is actually sending me a message because I'm getting people talking about this subject and how important it is that we have to pay attention to what's going on around us with something like the 1619 Project. Um, tell us exactly what this is. The 1619 Project was a special issue of the New York Times Sunday Magazine issued in August of 2019 on the supposed 400th anniversary of the arrival in Jamestown, Virginia of a ship bringing 20-some uh, African slaves to this English colony. And by the account in the Times, this was the beginning of chattel slavery in North America and the beginning of 400 years of uninterrupted uh, racial oppression, bigotry, and uh, disgrace. It was a kind of anti-American or I hate America manifesto. Uh, it starts with 1619. It carries that argument through the American Revolution, the Civil War, and onward to the present as just one uninterrupted history of racial oppression and division. Um, so that's what the 1619 Project is. You know, growing up you know, during the 60s and early 70s, um, I'm a child of the bicentennial, so to me, the American Revolution has a special meaning to me. I mean, the first president I was able to vote for was Ronald Reagan. Um, and I saw back then that people were trying to rewrite history. Uh, they started off with multiculturalism, they started off with different items that they would toss in there. And now, over the years, we're seeing a continuous as they call it, reframing of our history. Is this dangerous or is history interpretive or is it based on facts? Well, history needs to be based on facts, however much interpretation gets added to the facts. But in the case of the 1619 Project, we're not really talking about facts. We're talking about myths, uh, stories that the Times decided to tell which in some cases are just plainly not true. Those slaves that were brought to Jamestown, Virginia in 1619, once they got off the pirate ship that brought them there, were turned into indentured servants. In a few years, they were released. Many of them became landowners. They intermarried with the white population, and they just simply weren't slaves. So tracing American slavery to that year is actually wrong. You can't interpret your way out of that. When the Times continued the story, it treated the American Revolution as founded by people who were fighting to keep slavery intact in the United in what were to be the United States, uh, out of fear that the British were going to emancipate American slaves. Well, you can read the American Revolution as a lot of things and interpret it many ways, but trying to interpret it that way is impossible. We know that because the Declaration of Independence laid out several dozen reasons for the uh, revolution. Protecting slavery wasn't one of them. 
nor do we have anywhere in the documentary record of that era a single American patriot saying, yeah, we need to fight the British in order to maintain slaves. Uh, it just didn't happen, so they made it up. And again, you can't interpret your way out of the factual box in that case. Uh, Americans had a variety of reasons to rebel against the British, but maintaining slavery wasn't one of them. Uh, likewise, the, uh, the 1619 Project, for example, argues that every step towards freedom and equality that African Americans have made in 400 years has been solely on the basis of their own efforts. So the abolitionist movement is erased, the role of white Americans in fighting for civil rights is completely done away with. We are left with this uh, picture of self-help with no involvement of people who are white in it at all. It's just false. It's not true. That's not how it happened. Um, and so on. This, this is a, a kind of masterly reframing of American history in the direction of stuff that breeds racial resentment, but it is not based on what actually happened. You know, what I, I really find ironic, this is a project of the New York Times, the liberal New York Times, and yet <laughs> the New York Times doesn't even own up to its own racial history with Adolf Oaks. You know, he owned the uh, the Chattanooga Times. He was a segregationist, but believe it or not, a, a Jewish segregationist. Uh, and they had a history, and they, they won't even own up to their own history, and yet they want to preach to us today. I find that very ironic, isn't it? It is very ironic. The, the New York Times is an old newspaper that prides itself on being our newspaper of record, but its own record is pretty spotty in, in more ways than you can talk about in the time available. But <laughs> I would say what the Times has been up to in this uh, uh, case was a kind of descent into political advocacy. They were upset over the failure of the Mueller investigation to lead to an indictment of uh, President Trump for colluding with Vladimir Putin. They were searching around for some other way to smear him, and in an editorial meeting in the summer of 1619, they decided the way forward would be to smear him as a racist. The 1619 project had been in the works for a while, but it became the vehicle for a particular kind of political attack. That's part of the motive behind it, and here we are. Well, you know, you, you have a, a very, uh, 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 my, I just had a brain fart, pardon me, um, illustrious scholarly career. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we're going to get into how your book is written and why I love it so much. Uh, well, I'm an anthropologist by training, and I spent uh, much of my career as a professor of anthropology and then an academic administrator at Boston University, later on uh, a provost of a small Christian college in New York City called the King's College, and for the last uh, 13 years I've been head of this organization called the National Association of Scholars. We are kind of the uh, conservative opposition you know, on uh, in professoriate in this country. A sometimes lonely position, but a goal uh, to which I think I am well suited. Well, I, I, I have a friend of mine. He's a teacher upstate New York, 
uh, one of the ones that exposed uh, what was going on with the history book they had in high school called The World, uh, and he was one of the ones that exposed a lot of that. Maybe I might put him in touch with you, because he also has his own show, too. But you start off the book uh, by basically explaining what the project is, but then you also list all the uh, contributors. And the main architect of this is Nicole Hannah-Jones. Oh, who is she? Well, she is a, um, a black journalist uh, who several years ago won one of the MacArthur Genius Awards. Uh, this year, she won the Pulitzer Prize for Opinion Journalism. So she is, uh, let's say, a decorated and esteemed member of the uh, journalistic left uh, who has never really drawn distinctions between uh, telling stories and uh, finding facts. So she's a journalist in the sense of someone who uh, has found it convenient to uh, present to the world as though they were facts, uh, fables that uh, please her audience. Uh, she is a very say, flamboyant person. She regards herself, uh, her phrase is the Beyonce of journalism, um, and she has a bright red dyed hair and a big afro, and she goes around the country these days giving uh, very well-received speeches to sympathetic audiences. So I would say you could fairly describe her as a political activist in the guise of a journalist. Um, she blogs a lot. She deletes her blogs a lot. When the post-George uh, Floyd riots broke out uh, in American cities, a conservative commentator suggested that uh, they could be called the 1619 riots in light of her uh, efforts to incentivize this kind of protest. And she said she proudly owned the term. So 1619 riots are part of her uh, contribution. You know, I, 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 I blog every once in a blue moon. I've never deleted one, nor have I ever deleted a tweet. So I don't know. You know you're putting it out there for everyone to look at. And, you know, you're going to get some heat sooner or later on whatever you post. And I don't mind. I don't mind someone turning around and giving me an opposing opinion because it opens a conversation. But to put something out there and then just to yank it away means that maybe <laughs> – Something you put out there isn't honest. Um, one of the things I, I, I love talking about, like I said, I, I'm a student of history, but um, one of the things I'd like to talk about is how we got to the point of the Mayflower Compact and the Declaration of Independence, because you have to go back to uh, the Book of English Common Law that was codified by King Harold. You have to go to the Magna Carta, which recognize man's freedom and the right of property, the right of self-defense, the right of equality. And these are things the pilgrims brought over. So you're, you're saying that actually the true start of the American ideal started with the Mayflower Compact. Am I reading that right or wrong? You're reading it exactly right. I think the happenstance arrival of a bunch of slaves in Jamestown, Virginia, is an interesting historical incident worth noting, but it has nothing to do with the country that we became. The arrival of the pilgrims off the coast of Cape Cod on November 11, 
1620, a little over a year later, however, was a momentous event. The, the ship with its 102 passengers brought about, uh, about two-thirds of the passengers were pilgrims. The rest were uh, Englishmen looking to settle in Virginia and become farmers. When they were blown off course and came to that barren coast of Massachusetts, the, the settlers, the pilgrims called them strangers, said, well, we're no longer under English law. We're outside English territory. We can go where we want and do what we want. The, uh, the religious dissidents viewed this as uh, something that presaged disaster, so they negotiated. And the outcome of that negotiation was a very short document, fewer than 200 words, that we call the Mayflower Compact. It picks up from, from the Magna Carta and other important elements of the English Constitution the idea that people needed to be treated equally and fairly. It creates a civic body politic. They were going to elect their own leaders, establish their own laws. They realized that the English crown wasn't going to be governing them in any meaningful way. So they had to decide the rules of the road. What they decided on was the first glimmering of um, what became American self-rule, an idea of a community of people who could voluntarily get together and create a social compact that, which overcame their differences. They treated everybody equally. The masters and servants were both signers of the, this uh, document, and the strangers and the pilgrims both agreed to abide by it. And lo and behold, they did. For some 50 years, that was the governing document of the community they created. That event, that signing of the Mayflower Compact, is not of equal importance with uh, the Declaration of Independence 156 years later, but it was uh, an interesting and a very important precursor of it. It was that first whispering of the idea of American self-government and recognition of the, the due rights and responsibilities of being part of the community that governs itself by rule of law. You know, um, I find it ironic because you said, as even though I haven't seen it in writing, but you just said that the 1619 ship, the white line that came over, had indentured servants. And one of those indentured servants that came over of African descent ended up later on changing and anglicizing his name and being a plantation and slave owner himself, who then successfully sued in court to make an individual enslaved for life. And I think that's the very first person that owned a genuine slave, yet it was a slave slave that owned a slave. Uh, yes, that, that's a, I would say, a bitterly ironic story. Um, the, the man that he did enslave uh, became uh, a precursor of chattel slavery in the U.S., but what did not happen then was the establishment of a broad system of slavery in the U.S. That waited about 50 or 60 years after that event. So slavery was beginning to get into the, the, the water, but it had to get drunk by large numbers of people. I find it very ironic that they're upset about slavery in America when the first true actual identified slave owner was a black. And, and that, that, the irony on that, it, it just, uh, I don't even know where to go from that one. But you know, it, you know, do facts really matter in this? 
the, the New York Times and this Nicole Hannah-Jones is putting out this and saying it's fact. They're putting it out into the classroom and teaching it as if it's flat, fact. Uh, is this really dangerous? Oh, of course it's dangerous. Um, history matters to us because we think of ourselves as heirs to the past. If we present the past as a story in which uh, Americans are villains who have founded all their prosperity and freedom on the misery of others, that's how we will see ourselves as oppressors who need to atone. But if we look at the past as what it really is, a, a mixture of good and bad, of people who set high ideals and oftentimes fail to live up to them, we can see ourselves as part of a long chain of history that they're striving to make our lives better and the lives of the people around us better. History is what informs our sense of who we are and why we do what we do. So it matters tremendously if you tell a false story, one that uh, feeds into uh, resentment and um, racial disharmony, the destruction of a common goal, a sense of who we are as a united people. If you create that kind of story, you are really poisoning the minds of generations to come. There cannot be an America without Americans who believe in the ideals. If your job is to debunk those ideals and cynically say they were just there in order to keep people in submission to an illegitimate power, you're going to end up with a country that can't sustain itself. So I can't think of a, a, a matter of greater moment to the future of our country than deciding which version of history you want, the mythological one of America as a place of oppression and, and evil, or an America that strive to be a light to the nations. And um, that's, that's what we're fighting for here. And yes, it's in the schools. When the uh, New York Times unleashed this project, it was in conjunction with the Pulitzer Center, which had turned it into a curriculum with modules suitable for every level of education from kindergarten through 12th grade. They had already signed up some 4,000 American history teachers to adopt it. They presented it successfully as a curriculum to be taught in the Chicago schools, in the Buffalo schools, many other school districts around the country have now formally incorporated the 1619 project into what they teach about history. Uh, I, I think it's there in South Carolina if you go looking for it. Uh, I don't know for sure which schools it's in, but it's one of those things where it's bypassed the, the public. Uh, even school boards may not know that it's in their own schools because they've sold it directly to the teachers. Oh, directly to the teachers. Because um, my school superintendent knows me and I know him. <laughs> I've had him to address my Tea Party group and uh, he's addressed our, our county GOP. So he actually is active in the community. We've had school superintendents in the past that were completely hands off. You can't call them, you can't talk to them, you can't reach out to them. This guy is very good and very interactive. So I'm going to check with him. I, de I definitely will check with him on that one. What you write in your book, uh, which I found uh, rather startling, because you know, I make sure I know what I'm talking about before I open my big mouth. <laughs> Being Italian, I got a really big mouth. Uh, you wrote that half, fewer than half of the American college students in one study could place the Civil War within the correct half century. 
More than a third of the general public cannot name any rights protected in the First Amendment. Nearly three-quarters of Americans can't name the three branches of government. Only 12% of U.S. high school students are scored proficient in American history. Many elite colleges and universities fail not only to require their undergraduates to take a course in American history, but to require history majors to take one course in American history. And I'll add on to that one. Fewer law, uh, law colleges even teach the Constitution. This is a very frightening thing in the trend that we see in our schools. It's appalling. I, I think we have uh, forfeited a lot of the nation's birthright by simply uh, erasing it from the minds of people who are in school to learn something. So these days we value critical thinking and we value uh, stories about uh, the bad ways minorities have been treated over the centuries, but we don't value telling the basic story of why America ever came into existence in the first place. You know, uh, I have a great love for this country, as you obviously understand, and when I see people trying to tear it apart, um, I just shake my head and like, have you ever traveled outside of the United States? Have you ever seen what is outside of the borders? Uh, I mean, I used to own a travel agency at one point in my past history. Uh, and yes, I've traveled throughout other countries. And yes, I've had a machine gun in my face when I was just a tourist. Um, the freedoms we have here are so precious, and yet they're so fragile. And I've never seen them any more fragile than I see them today. So when you address a crowd or a group, how do you stir them a love for the country to try to help us protect these freedoms that this very project is going to rip apart. Well, I think most Americans, even if they don't know our history, value their own sense of freedom and they kind of take it for granted. So one thing that's oftentimes important to do is to find the people in the audience who are immigrants because immigrants almost reliably understand that America is a special place and they find something here that they didn't have at home. That's why they came here. And their testimony can be much more powerful than my own. But it's important to get people to talk about the freedoms that they do value. And that's the, the ledge on which this conversation begins. If they understand and value particular freedoms, then you can talk to them about where those came from and the understanding that they don't exist everywhere and they didn't exist here at all times. This is something that was achieved and it was something that would be taken away if we don't protect that achievement. So that really is the conversation that we need to have. People will pay attention to history if you give them a reason to pay attention to it. And um, that I take to be the primary role that I'm playing in this book and other things that I do. Well, you know, there's nothing that just, they want to use the race card to divide us and also to shut us up. Uh, but I think, I don't know if you've got the same feeling, but people are now pushing back on the 1619 project. President Trump had announced the 1776, um, I forgot what he called it. Um, but there's several other groups out there also pushing 1776 to say that the racial divide is not as bad as we think. 
we have people pulling the race card saying, well, you know, uh, I'm black, so you have to owe me reparations for slavery. And I turned around to someone and I said, I'm only second generation American. Uh, my family had absolutely nothing to do with that. And they were farmers in Italy, and they were acrobats in Germany that had nothing to do with the slave trade or racial division. So why am I owing you? And then I hear uh, where they go, white privilege. And I had to work three jobs to put myself through college, so I don't know where that came from. But everyone has their own viewpoint on life. And for some reason, we have to accept one person's over anyone else's. And that's what I'm getting from the 1619 Project. Theirs is the only truth, and no other truth exists. Well, it's, it is, in fact, a case where if you disagree with the 1619 Project, you're likely to be called a racist, or if not outwardly, outwardly called a racist, it will be a strong implication that there's something seriously amiss with you, that every right-thinking person should get on board with this thing. Um, the call for reparations was baked into the 1619 Project, and Nicole Hannah-Jones followed it a little, about a year later with another big piece in the Times explicitly saying this is about reparations and adding that once the reparations are paid, the grievance still doesn't go away. You're still going to owe us because this is a debt that can never be fully repaid. Um, racial resentment is a kind of religion. It's something people can believe in and form their identity around. That uh, identity requires almost by definition that uh, it find enemies in everybody else. So it doesn't matter if you're Italian-American or German-American or descended from a Mayflower pilgrim, uh, you are somehow uh, responsible for all the misery and suffering that African-Americans uh, endured over the years. And even today, African-Americans who aren't really suffering much of anything at all, they live in a free society and their rights are respected, are tempted into this uh, wild exaggeration of themselves as victims of uh, white supremacy. Well, uh, pardon me, I don't see that white supremacy, and it's not racial blinders that I'm wearing. It's my living in today's society where people are by and large treated as equals, with some exceptions. And uh, that's the world we live in, and to see it clearly is to reject this preposterous identity politics into which we have been plunged. Well, you know, if you look at the last 50 years in American history, um, we have never seen our, a nation that is so colorblind as we do today. Uh, you see more interracial marriages, you see no barriers to any field. Uh, we've elected the first African-American president, that was Bill Clinton, wasn't it? <laughs> But uh, we see such where you can go into any field of endeavor you wish, and you can go from living in a Danonet tenement to being a senator in the United States. Uh, there is no barriers, only what your dreams, what you, what you fail to aspire to, what you personally do not choose to achieve or fail to achieve because you don't have enough in you to do it. It's now up to the individual, and we've never seen anything so free as we see in America. But it seems the freer we get, 
the more we have another side trying to oppress us and keep us down. Now, is this about power? Is this about finally destroying the United States from within? Or is it all the, all the above? Well, it's really all of the above. The pursuit of power is certainly part of it. This has become almost uh, welded to the agenda of the Democratic Party, um, but it's welded as well to the careers of individuals who see themselves as rising to the top if they can just stir up enough racial resentment to propel them there. Um, there's a monetary motive in it for some, um, but I think most fundamental of all is just a, a hatred of America um, and of the values that America stands for. A fair number of these people are are Marxists or influenced by Marxists. They take it that uh, our nation is bad and can only get better by revolution. And the 1619 Project is a step towards that revolution. And there we go. I'm afraid that's uh, the world we live in at this very moment. Uh, it is unfortunate. We see a nation divided, and uh, it's it's almost as if it's like a a viper feeding upon itself. And when we turn around, and say, "No, wait a minute, come on, take a step back, take a deep breath," you know, let's let's get our wits around us. Uh, we seem to be told, "Hey, you know, sit down and shut up." Uh, but I, I think it's time for us to no longer sit down and shut up. We've got to be able to speak out about it. But one of the good things I saw is that people are starting to push back at the 1619 Project. As a matter of fact, to the point where back in March of this year, the New York Times retreated just a little bit. Not enough, but do you think more of a pushback will cause them to even step back even further? You know, How far do we have to go to push back? Well, the New York Times has taken a number of tiny steps backwards. After many months of being told, for example, by reputable historians that the claim that the American Revolution was fought to protect slavery, uh, the New York Times' own fact checker came forward and said, well, I told them that was preposterous, but they went ahead and published it anyway. And at that point, the Times altered the 1619 project by adding two words. They said, some Americans fought the revolution because they wanted to protect slavery. Well, some was a nice slippery word. All you needed to find is one American who believed that, but they haven't even been able to identify that one American. So that was pretty silly. After President Trump spoke at the National Archives in September, announcing that he was going to pursue this uh, 1776 commission. Um, the Times suddenly got uh, very alarmed. What had happened is that the Times had launched the project to discredit Trump. Now Trump was using the project to discredit the Times. So <laughs> they went back and, and altered uh, some of the key sentences in the 1619 project stealthily. That is, they didn't published corrections. They just quietly went in and altered words and phrases here and there to make it less outrageous than it was. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Phil Magnus, caught on to this, pointed it out, and uh, I got together a group of 20-some historians. We published a 
letter to the Pulitzer Foundation calling on them to uh, rescind Nicole Hannah-Jones's Pulitzer Prize on the basis that this sort of uh, action, stealth editing to deceive the public, is not consistent with what a Pulitzer Prize should be. Um, that letter got, a, of course, the back of the hand from the Pulitzer people, but it did prompt one of the important uh, writers at the New York Times to break ranks and publish a, a long essay in which he uh, acknowledged basically every uh, claim that we had made. So a new brouhaha broke out in the Times, some dissension within the ranks. Nicole Hannah-Jones was very upset. Uh, so I would say what's happened is that uh, we have succeeded in putting an asterisk beside this report. It's impossible now for anyone of intellectual integrity to take it at face value. The, the word is out that it is full of, uh, uh, well, I would say they're lies, but we can be polite and call them mistakes. And um, that the, the overall project has come to a, a place where Serious people don't need to take it seriously. The problem is that it's still in the schools, and it's probably going to stay in the schools for a long time to come. That's where we really have to engage at this point. Get people on school boards, get school administrators like your friend to involve themselves and find out whether this thing is actually being taught. And if it is, it has to be stopped not because we want to censor uh, what teachers teach, but we certainly have to make sure that whatever they're teaching is at least in conformity with known history, not something that just gets made up in order to inflame passions. Well, are, are you familiar with Sherry Few, who runs the USTIE, the United States Parents Involved in Teaching? No, I am not. Sherry you, yeah. She ran for school superintendent statewide here in South Carolina. She's a friend of mine also. I may even hook you up with her because if anyone can get out nationwide, because there she has the nationwide organization for parents involved in education. Um, what I'll do is I'll reach out to her and uh, have the two of you connect. I would love that. That's very gracious of you. Well, one of the fun so, things I love doing is, is getting people to, uh, uh, what do you call it, network. I'm sorry, I'm having one of those brain parts. Network. <laughs> yeah, get a network together. Yeah, because, you know, getting the word out about this project into the schools, because she was instrumental in pulling Common Core from our schools here in South Carolina. So, you know, yeah, it would be excellent. That was another battle I was involved in, too. Uh, well, there are maybe a dozen organizations that I've been working with in one form or another that are also trying to fight the 1619 Project. I'm far from being alone in this. Uh, I just happen to have uh, the book of the moment on it, but the uh, Bob uh, Woodson at the Woodson Center in D.C. has uh, put together a group of black scholars around the country who are pointing out what's fault in the 1619 Project, the Heritage Foundation, the Texas Public Policy. A great number of allies I've been able to find, and I find this important that uh, 
conservative and middle-of-the-road groups all over the country are beginning to awaken to the danger this poses for us, uh, where I have yet to see as much engagement as I would like are all these historical societies around the country that you would think would understand that the history that they promote, whether they're promoting the history of the Mayflower or the American Revolution or uh, what happened in the war between the states, would have some stake in resisting this false history. And so far, I don't think very many of them have uh, woken up to the uh, reality of the moment, which is that a completely different history is finding its way into our schools and therefore into the minds of the next generation. And that's the sad part. And actually, I see it in my nephews, unfortunately. But it's an absolutely excellent book. It's called 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. And Peter, where can people find you? Well, they can find me at the National Association of Scholars, that's nas.org, and they can find the book at my publishers and counterbooks.com. And uh, it's also, of course, available on Amazon, and I hope at least soon in bookstores wherever you are. Oh, I hope so, too. Um, I have my co-host sitting here very quietly. Uh, did you have any questions for our, our guest? Uh, so 
it is a scholarly book in a way, but it's the kind of scholarship that's meant to uh, go down easy and uh, to keep the reader awake through a story that could be tedious, but doesn't need to be. So um, I'm glad that you're receiving it that way. That's what I intended. Um, I want the book to be fun. It was fun for me to write. Um, I had a story to tell and I pull it. Oh, yeah, isn't this timing was awesome? Wasn't Mark who started writing that? No, I think Mark, you had your first draft. Well, you know. Right? I, yeah, I, I was um, writing this book at a time when I wasn't sure that anyone would be interested. Uh, it interested me, but uh, I couldn't tell back in March and April that uh, the 16, 19 project would still be on the table when the book came out. The publisher wanted to hold it until after the election, uh, thinking that um, all the drama around the presidential election this year would prevent attention to the book. Well, the election isn't over yet, and uh, the uh, book seems to be getting uh, a nice helping of national attention, for which I'm grateful. Uh, but the timing turned out to be great, and here we are with uh, the anniversary of the Pilgrim's arrival just behind us and the election continuing, so to speak. So I'm, uh, I'm happy with the results. Well, keep on reminding everyone, uh, Gore held out for 37 days on the challenge, so it was 37 days after the election before it was finally decided, and it's not finally decided until it's certified by the government and the Electoral College has voted in full. So it, we've got a fight ahead. We still have a chance. Um, fingers crossed and prayers up to God. Uh, well, that's, that's how I do it. <laughs> right. I, I leave it there. I don't know what the outcome will be, but I am waiting for the Electoral College to do its work. And at that point, whatever it is, I'll have to resign myself to it. So uh, until then, though, I think it's up for grabs. Absolutely. Well, Peter, it has been fun speaking with you, and I'm sorry we had the mix-up over the last show, um, but we welcome you back anytime. Uh, if you have anything you want to talk about, even coming back on to talk again about the 1620 book and the 1619 project, we welcome you back anytime, sir. Well, thank you. I always have words, so if you need me, I'll be available. And thank you so much for having me today. And God bless for the hard work you do, sir. And have a very blessed and happy Thanksgiving. Oh, you too. Bye. All right. That was Peter W. Woods, his book that is called The 1620 Project. I'm not sorry. Get that right, Anne. 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Peter W. Woods. Uh, check it out. Up on Amazon and stores near you. All right. So that's all we got for this segment. And we will... Yeah. 
show today, everyone. I want to thank you all for joining us and listening here on Facebook, uh, iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, uh, I said Facebook, <laughs> iHeartRadio, and half a dozen other places. I have no idea where we are anymore. Uh, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. We will be back here again next Friday, and I do have some guests lined up already, and I already forgot who they are because I didn't put them on the uh, queue, but I'll let you know who it is. Again, thank you for participating in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio as well as Facebook. And everyone, have a healthy, happy, and safe weekend out there. And I'll leave you with my friend Gary Pecorella, Save America. So until then, I say good night and God bless.
America, America, the home of the free. But there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her. What matters most to you? That's why I stand for the flag. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.